Well, hello and welcome to episode number 336 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos, and in this week's show, there is a shocking announcement from Nats involving their current batch of trainees. An inquiry into a Shetland helicopter crash says the crew would have failed their training exam and the fate of another fleet of A380s is being decided next week. In the military, the UK Ministry of Defence may not purchase as many F-35s as originally planned and the US Air Force acknowledges the rapid development and testing of a new clean sheet fighter aircraft. Ian Palmer continues his enlightening chat with Captain Nick and Dan Holly and Captain Al join Matt for a weather-themed plain truth this week. So joining me, as always, in the PTUK studios with all the right buttons and a very, very comfy chair, it's Matt Smith. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Hello. How are we? How are we all? We survived another week, chaps. Didn't we do it's well? Another week, in the, another week in the can. Matt, <laughs> Matt you've... Um, you, you've kind of upgraded your comfort in the PTK studios this week. Indeed, yes, absolutely. Uh, well, those of you who know me have, will know that I've been struggling with a bit of a bad back of, of the last sort of few weeks, really, that's uh, sort of taken a bit of a turn for the worse. But uh, I'm delighted to say that, uh, yes, I've got a very comfortable chair now. So it's, uh, it's, it's nice not to be sort of, you know, numb, frankly, from the waist down. <laughs> so definitely a result. But uh, there we are. Very cool. It's definitely an upgrade from the old chair, Matt, I from think. The, yes, and, absolutely, the office And don't chairs. forget as well to tell tell the uh, listeners what that chair has built in as well, yeah, which well, you haven't got, used yeah, properly No, yet. I know. I'm, I'm a bit scared to. It's got this sort of like <laughs> massage function, and I'm a bit worried that if I do turn it on, I may, na- may actually never leave this chair, <laughs> frankly. Um, but, uh, you know, Neville turned mm. that into something terribly inappropriate, no doubt. But uh, there we go. <laughs> speak, so, of, speak of the devil. Speak of the devil. <laughs> Actually, we're just going to quickly uh, make a note that Armando, unfortunately, can't be with us this week. He is uh, flying, which is always a good thing. We love it when Armando's flying because mm. that means he's working hard for the industry and also um, keeping the wheels of the aircraft turning. So uh, hope you're OK, Armando, and uh, we miss you, and hopefully you'll be back next mm, week. Indeed. In fact, actually, but, I'm, I'm hoping, uh, if I just press this button here, we should have a little ooh. greeting from him. Bear with, bear with. Hey, guys, happy Friday. I'm here on the grounds of the Atlanta Hartsfield International Airport. Like I said last week, I've uh, been doing a lot of flying. I'll be flying pretty much every Friday for the rest of this month, so can't be on the show, and for that, I'm sorry. Uh, as you guys know, and you can tell by the weather here, we had some significant weather, which was Hurricane Sally coming through the southeast United States. That did make for some uh, pretty interesting flying. That's pretty much what I've been up to this whole week, is just flying three, four days a week, still trying to fly skydivers, still trying to fly for Civil Air Patrol. So basically, my life is in the air, as long as this kind of weather doesn't keep me on the ground. Highlight for the week, meeting up with none other than podcast royalty, Captain Jeff. Uh, this morning we went up to a nice Cuban restaurant here in the Atlanta area, solved all the world's problems, talked about everything podcasts, uh, and as and life, love, and liberty, as I always say. But anyways, sorry I can't be on the show again. I hope you guys enjoy some of the military stories, and I can't wait to hear the entire show this Sunday when it gets published. Ah, there we go. You see, thank you, Armando. Yeah, he sent us a he sent us a little intro in. Bless him. So uh, very grateful. Blubber miss him. Absolutely. Miss him. Yes. However, we do also have However, other podcast yes, royalty with us right I know. now yeah as always joining us from the awesome nev tech studios it's the man who loves everything in 4k it's <laughs> neville bounds 
Yes, 4K is often the price rather than the resolution, <laughs> I, I find. Well, uh, quite. We're with young Armando about his uh, audio there, a bit over-modulated. <laughs> yes, yes. No, he, he did, so, he did, he did so, send uh, in his apologies. It's all right. Yes, I hope he did. <laughs> Very poor show. Hey, come However, on. It was still nice to hear from him. Play nice, you. <laughs> but uh, no, great to be back on the show this week, guys. And uh, a packed show this week. We've got a lot to pack in. Mm. Some really interesting stories as we were trawling through the news this week so uh, yeah looking forward to uh, presenting uh, all of that with you too yeah so how, how are things over in in buckinghamshire neville good oh, yeah very very good v very nice weather i must say very pleasant and uh, just preparing myself for my visit to belfast next week oh, i haven't been there for a few months are you flying um, got, got a full week in belfast so tragically i realize for everybody i shan't be on the show on friday of next week and then the week after that i'm off to stockholm uh, for the week as well oh, so dear. um ba boys uh, of course of course um is, is now the, way the, um, there's no quarantine between sweden and uh, the uk which is great so i'm off there for a week on business i'm going to do it quickly because in case they shut it all down again uh, yeah because uh, that, that could easily happen i guess but uh, yeah so yeah looking forward to that um but uh, no great to be back on the show this week so we're going to give a big thanks to everyone who's joined us in the live youtube chat room this evening all the usual family members in there plus more and uh, some of them joined very early indeed actually in the uh, in the day a few of them have been there for before seven o'clock this evening some, so some of them were there before you. us <laughs> i know so uh, hello to alan loveday uh, we've got uh, auntie liz also in the chat room tonight and scrolling there alan white hello to you alan white we've got masha hello masha tony s hello to you tony lane street uh, we've got uh, Neville Bounds, it's always good to have Nev in the uh, chat room. Uh, Dave Abbey, hello to you, Dave Abbey, hope you're well. Captain Cruz, hello to you, Captain Cruz. And scrolling down to make sure I don't miss anyone out. No, I don't think I've missed anyone out. Hopefully, I'll let you miss anyone out. But, uh, <laughs> just, don't forget just, as well. I've just seen if, what Nev's popped up on the screen. Look. Oh, no. <laughs> At least it wasn't vertical video. That oh, is true. I, I, he knows the rules on that one, to be fair, doesn't he, Nev? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> don't forget if you listen or watch the show uh, through YouTube, but if you do listen to the show as an audio podcast and you want to join us each week, or you may want to join us each week on the live show, uh, don't forget to. Looks up on YouTube and also to hit that subscribe button and also click the bell icon, which is right next to that, to be notified when we go live with new episodes. Because we'd love to have you in the chat room. Because honestly, let's be honest, guys, the chat room is what really does make this show. What oh, it yeah. is. Absolutely. Yeah. Mainly because they know an awful lot more than we ever will. <laughs> that is absolutely 100% correct. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yes. yes. But, I, uh, I wish so, it wasn't the case, but it is. I, I, know. I know. The trouble is, when we don't have Armando, on the show we rely heavily on the chat room <laughs> indeed yes and and well it's all between between sort of uh armando and uh our producer john uh we've normally got all bases covered but because this week we've got neither of them so good no. luck everyone uh <laughs> oh, john john if you're listening hope you're well yeah absolutely so we are gonna start the show then as we do each week with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the uk so if all the teams ready? Yeah. Yes. Let's, Let's go. go. So 
So kicking off this week's first news story is on the simpleflying.com website. And for those of you who haven't yet flown on an A380, you better get your skates on. Because the headline on here, Lufthansa set to decide on the A380's fate next week. So Lufthansa has rumoured retirement of its entire fleet of A380s and is set to, to uh, decide uh, upon the the complete removal of all the aircraft next week in fact on monday so in a meeting uh, this week ceo carsten Suver said that the future of the super jumbo would be confirmed on monday he warned that deeper cuts to both fleet and the workforce were likely to be needed as the airline's recovery continues to be sluggish rumors began swirling last week that lufthansa was mulling dropping the super jumbo for a good uh, while a number of the planes had been marked for early retirement, it was hoped that at least eight would eventually return to service. However, people close to the matter warned that the airline could be facing a future with no A380s at all. Naturally, these rumours were a topic of investigation at uh, a meeting this week. Lufthansa HQ at the CEO, Carsten Sefer, conducting a question and answer session with employees said that the future of the giant Airbus was indeed in question and that a decision would be made next week. And um, it says here that uh, overall Sofa believes that only twin-engine aircraft have a real future within the Lufthansa fleet, despite some of its A340s still being relatively young, while the airline may well decide to shelve more of these and potentially more of its Boeing 747-400s too. It's unlikely it would want to part with its newer and more efficient 747-8s. It's a shame, guys. Obviously, with um, so many airlines kind of binning off essentially the A380 but we all know why the reasons behind this and COVID obviously doesn't help at all mm. but um, you know some of these aircraft I mean this um, the first Lufthansa just a bit of facts for you the first Lufthansa A380 was delivered on May the 19th 2010 so that's uh, what guys barely what, 10 years mm. 10 years yeah, they haven't been in service long, have they? Although, interestingly, I notice in the, the chat room here, like, because, uh, uh, for example, Tony is saying that um, surely Emirates will be using them for many years to come, which is which is uh, n not untrue, I don't think. It, but um, Emirates have got the market for it. Emirates yeah, have got the true. huge, yeah. huge global market to uh, to fill these A380s. Mm. And, you know, they've got the huge infrastructure in place in Dubai. You know, they've got the facilities to, to cater for these aircraft. And, yeah. I think Emirates will definitely get rid of some of the older 380s because they've still got a few more. Be I think they've got yeah. one or two more being delivered, the last ones of their orders. But yeah. um, oh, well, yeah. Dave Abbey in the chat room is actually saying, sort of, you know, Tony, uh, they don't have much choice, uh, do they? I suppose. But no, uh, no, not as you at say, all. they're sort of quite committed, I suppose. Now, mind you, they because they they because they're they're mainly a two fleet, aren't they? So they're the triple sevens as well at Emirates, isn't there? Which I suppose yep. are a bit yeah, smaller, the aren't they? But, uh, yeah. yeah, indeed. No, it's a shame. What do, what do you think, Nev? The, the end is well, nigh. It just these. occurred to me that I, I may never fly on another four-engine jet again. And wow, that yeah. 744 that we came back from from the Dubai Air Show might be the last four-engine I ever travel on. Hmm. That's a sad, that's a very sad thought, isn't it? Oh, hello. Oh, look at look who's look who's just popped in randomly. <laughs> Oh, from 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 a horrible location. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just I'm just sitting here checking in on you guys. Oh, just keeping an eye on us. Come on, come on. Describe to us where you are. 
This is the music recording city of Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Oh, very good. Very good. There's some very ugly aircraft behind you, by the way. <laughs> Which one? That one or that one? Yeah, but both look hideous, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what are they behind you? Are they Pilatesy things? What's that? Pilatesy what, what things? The aircraft? What, the aircraft yeah, what are the aircraft that are behind you? So that's a PC-1247. And that right there is an Embraer Legacy 650, which is bigger than the Finam. Oh, Ooh, bigger than Pip's jet. Yeah. Oh, oh. Apparently, there goes some kind of Twin Cessna taking off. There's a 310 or something. What, what's on the uh, What's on the cards for today, then, Armando? Anything exciting? I've actually, yeah, I've actually only got one more flight for the day to Atlanta, and then I'm done. But I'll be done at. 4 p.m., which is the show ends. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, well, never mind. <laughs> well, we, we're not live, are we? Yeah, 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 we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course we're live. <laughs> we really? How yeah, we are really yeah, live. Barely live, yeah, time. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we, we always I, start I on... I should that first. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all right. That's fine. Never mind. All part of the fun. <laughs> it's good It's good to, good to see you anyway, Armando. It's nice to have that lovely background as well. Yeah, absolutely. In that case... I may have some big news next week since we're live right now, and I don't want to say quite yet. So. Oh, okay. Ooh. Oh, oh, um, oh! Suddenly, I want to go to radio silence. Uh, right. <laughs> okay. Never mind. All right. Well, um, look forward to that. Well, uh, do feel free to join us after the show, Armando. Uh, <laughs> I'll join. I'll join with beers while I'm driving home. Very, right. Okay. Maybe, maybe not with the beers. Uh, we'll avoid that. Uh, but uh, you know, the coach driver and me just simply can't allow it. I'm afraid that's, that's right. just outrageous. You need like a Tesla that just drives itself. On. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get. We'll get. We'll get Google to get right on that. I'm sure it'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, actually, guys. Actually, comment from comment from Auntie Liz in the chat room. She loves seeing you live, Armando. Yeah. Uh, Auntie Liz, thank you very much for the koozie. She'll know what I'm talking about. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> oh well, I guess it's 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 all in jokes here this evening, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there we go. Never mind. Uh, right. Well, you better join us a bit later on then, Armando, because I need to know all what right. this news is now. I'm not going to be able to cope for the rest of the show. <laughs> You've no idea. All right. Yeah. You guys have a great show. Yeah. So long, chat. Bye, Armando. Bye. Bye, guys. Cheers, Armando. Take care. Uh, right, well, we'll move That's on to nice. the next. That was lovely, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, We're going to move on to the next story then. This is on the uh, Cairo this 7 story website. Is unreal. Yeah, absolutely. I wish I could play the video, but unfortunately I can't because it's uh, on a site that doesn't allow me to do it, which is a real shame. Uh, Cairo7.com. So it's a live local in depth. It's a news channel. Not quite sure where, but if you're in the area, you'll know why. Video shows passenger push airline employee who falls. This is absolutely. Absolutely shocking, this story. An alarming airport attack on Alaska Airlines gate agent was caught on video where an agent was pushed to the floor. It's a surveillance video you'll only see on Cairo 7. Um, the, that gate agent had to remind the passenger that he couldn't board the flight without wearing a mask. Uh, the passenger went away and came back after a while. When he did, they said that he was too intoxicated to fly. Uh, the video begins with the passenger having his ticket swiped. He is the man wearing a tan t-shirt as the he walks uh, toward the jetway three 
uh, gate agents around him, including longtime agent uh, Jill Simpson. And um, uh, we can't hear what they're saying, but we are told uh, he's being informed he won't be allowed to fly. It was midday, uh, 24th of August, at gate November 14 at Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. The man, later identified as 47-year-old Mark Alan Hicks of Folsom, California, had already been told he couldn't fly without a mask. He left. By the time he returned, he was wearing a mask, but the agents concluded he was too drunk to fly. The surveillance video shows them talking to him for a few seconds. Then, without warning, he pushes past, knocking uh, Latopsky flat. Uh, we showed the video to some passengers at SEA. Uh, that's very shocking, uh, actually, to see Sir Christopher Simpson, San Diego CA, who bumped, uh, who jumped when he saw Lukowski fall. Uh, she's only doing her job, and he, well, that's just too much there. Um, I mean, basically, I'll go on. The, the, the story goes on that various accounts of the people that, that, that were there to witness it. But I mean, this is. If anyone's had a chance to see the video of this, the videos with the yeah. links will be in the show notes. But yeah. um, I'm sure the video's probably been published on social media. But yeah. honestly, I watched that, and it's this. It wasn't just a little push or a shove. It was a full-on rampage into this woman, and she fell yeah. really, really, really hard. Indeed, uh, I, I will. Ju let me let me just see if I, I can't. As I say, it's not. Uh, what it, do you think of this, Nev? Because I I, I thought if you. Honestly, saw saw something like this happen in front of you. I think I, I, I'll definitely. Well, it's in. I'd weigh in myself. Well, yeah, it, it's shocking behaviour, isn't it? And unfortunately, with some of the things that are going on at the moment, some people's uh, temperament needs to be um, turned down a little bit. I think uh, some of the things that I'm hearing and seeing on social media and this kind of stuff as well, absolutely ridiculous. And I, I don't know why people do it. Uh, very unfortunate. Agreed. It's it's mm. not it's not good, really, is it? It's not good at no. all. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, we should yeah. move on before yeah, we all get really we cross. Won't, <laughs> we won't see things like that again. Well, you know, well, we will see them again because people just get drunk all the time for some uh, bizarre yes. reason. But anyway, yeah. Nev, you've got a story here which, again, is uh, is a really quite a, um, a distressing story for, for a lot of uh, people in the UK. I think this is, this is appalling, really. It's on theindependent.co.uk, and uh, Simon Calder uh, is reporting on this one. Uh, he's the travel correspondent for theindependent.co.uk. By the way, uh, Simon's PA, would you mind returning my emails when you get a chance? <laughs> um, sorry, did I say that out loud? <laughs> no, no. Um, no. Simon says trainee air traffic controllers with only weeks before graduation have been told that their training course is over and that they have lost their jobs. Nats, who is the UK air traffic controller provider, is the latest aviation employer to cut jobs. More than 120 trainees who have yet to gain their student licence and be posted to an operational unit have been offered redeployment or a voluntary exit package. All that work, pain of being away for six months from family, and it's back to square one, wrote one student controller. Uh, the Controllers Union prospect has described the move as a disastrously short-sighted and cruel decision. Until the coronavirus crisis, the skies in southeast England were the busiest in the world, with six airports serving London, formerly the world hub of aviation, and a prestigious amount of overflying traffic. But now the UK is ranked as 27th out of 31 nations in Europe in terms of passengers flying as a proportion of last year's levels. In July, only 11.6% of 2019 passengers flew to or from the UK. A spokesman for Nats said, we, are, we currently have 275 trainees 
who have passed through the college and are waiting to restart their on-the-job training at units across the country once traffic increases. They will provide sufficient control resource for the next two years and there is no capacity to take more trainees from our college. With this in mind, we have taken the very difficult decision to pause training at our college, which means that the 122 trainees have until the end of September to decide if they prefer to leave or to wait to see if there's any redeployment opportunities emerging over the course of October. Since lockdown, the trainees have been furloughed to take advantage of the government's job retention scheme. The most recent starters are on apprentice uh, contracts. Steve Jari, a National Secretary for Prospects, said this is a disastrous and short-sighted and cruel decision by Nats to dismiss these trainees, some of whom have just a fortnight left of their course to run. The aviation industry is Wait. facing unprecedented challenges, but simply dismissing these people is not the answer. They're being thrown to the wolves. We have received countless messages from trainee air traffic controllers in despair. Having got through a highly competitive selection process, their dream career has been ripped away from them. We have seen in previous downturns that cutting training undermines Nat's ability to provide a reliable service. It's dangerous to repeat, repeat the mistakes of the past by slashing potential ATC numbers to the point where the industry will be unable to recover after the pandemic. And that spokesman said that we will stay in regular contact with those who want us to and hope we'll be able to re-employ them when traffic recovers. They will have a guaranteed right to return to Nats when college training restarts. Our training college will remain active, supporting the trainees awaiting restart and providing refresher training for our existing qualified controllers as traffic levels increase. Uh, the union estimates that Nat spends an average of £150,000 on each trainee. Uh, well, my personal opinion is that this is extremely short-sighted because whatever happens in the next six or nine months, things are going to get better at some point and we need controllers, we need crew back on the aircraft and cancelling someone's training with just two weeks to run in some cases. That, that's uh, the bit... I, I do not even begin to understand how that is uh, good value and, and purposeful. I mean, that's the bit that really blows my mind, really, to be like two weeks away from your training complete. And in fact, I mean, Richard Adams, I think, is sort of agreeing, basically saying that that's disgusting. They should at least let them qualify first. As you say, I mean, that just seems so... <sighs> I don't know. I mean, everybody's, you know, bad things are happening. I mean, you know, we, we, we know that things aren't great at the moment. You know, we, I, I get that. But there must be a better way of, of you know, dealing with this rather than just pulling. The, I think the problem they've the got, under their obviously, feet. there's overhead associated with it. And yeah, obviously, that's going to be costly in the short term but mm. surely we should i mean we're always talking about atc shortage and capacity mm. surely we, we must uh, bring these people forward so that they've got opportunities coming up and yeah it's not going to be before christmas we, we all get that yeah. and it's probably going to be next year but they i personally think and i'm not in control of the birth strings obviously but i think that that's a very short-sighted decision mm. and they really need to think about uh, how they're going to provide controllers uh, for uh, future and the future expansion um, of the uh, airspace in the UK. Now, I'm, I'm. We all know how terrible my my memory is, so I apologise if this is wrong. But I, I seem to re recall, didn't something similar to this happen with Nats once before? 
where um, lots of people were sort of all laid off sort of short yeah, notice. The, and then suddenly, bit... exactly as you said, there was this massive yeah. shortage of, of ATC controllers. Uh, mm. Although, in, interestingly, um, it, worth noting, Tony S is actually pointing out that Nats aren't the only ATC provider in the UK. Hopefully they'll find employment elsewhere. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I very much agree with Tony on that. I hope they can find gainful employment elsewhere. Um yeah. Yes, absolutely. And the trouble is we've just got to get out of this cycle of uh, a bit like the, the pilot shortage. Do you remember a mm. few years ago, one minute we've got not enough pilots, next minute we've got too many. I say next minute. I mean, it, this goes in a sort of a four or five year cycle, doesn't it? Mm. And the same thing is going to happen with controllers if we're not careful. And we yeah. cannot have a situation where we are uh, on the back foot, where we haven't got people in employment. And I, and I do get that the, the, there's a... Uh, a cost associated Absolutely, with it, but yeah. Um, yeah. training people from scratch or bringing them back uh, cannot be economic, yeah. surely. Indeed. I'll take a couple more uh, comments from the chat room, if that's okay with, with yeah. everyone. Um, we've got, uh, so Captain Cruz is actually saying, great point, this puzzling news as providing 24-7 service should require about the same amount of people, even if traffic levels are down. Now, I know, I suppose somewhere like Heathrow, you can operate with a slightly smaller staff if you've only got one runway open, for example, but I think that... It, I'd, both open again now, aren't they? I seem to. Oh, they are not not full time. Not full time. They, they do right. uh, okay. alternate them occasionally, but uh, yeah, the the, mm. uh, the traffic is is greater than it was. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. And then the last point, which I'll just take, if that's okay. So Richard Adams is saying the amount of controlled airspace in the UK, particularly in the south, is always growing, often hard to get a clearance from Farnborough at the weekend, which is a good point. So, you know, I mean, it's I, I don't know. What what do you reckon to all this, Carlos? Yeah, you know, I just think it's the same when, when you know, we do pilot training, when, you know, when all these youngsters and stuff are going up through the through the levels mm. doing the pilot training, and then you get to a stage probably where a lot of these youngsters were before the whole COVID thing started. Mm. And now they've got, you know, these big loans. They've yeah, learned all this stuff. Yeah, that's isn't it? But now they've, they've got nowhere to go. There's, yeah, they've, they've, you know, they've still got the big loans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's the same for these guys, these Nats guys. You know, they've, mm. they've learned all this stuff. They've been really, you know, working so hard for this. And then it's just like that, gone. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you can imagine if that happened to, to, to like, you know, sort of you just finished, your, you know, two, that's the thing that's really sticking in my claw is two weeks away from completing. I mean, mm. you'd have thought common sense would say for the sake of two weeks, at least get that handful of people mm. qualified. But then I suppose you've got the question of where do you draw the line, um, I guess. But uh, there we are. Anyway, we should probably move on. Next story. And this one is on the aviationpros.com website. And uh, obviously with this, what's going on in the world, all these aircraft that are sitting static across the globe, doing nothing. And uh, this story is how fuel contamination threatens grounded aircraft. Something new to listen to. So because fuel is static and may be warm for extended periods without being in flight, difficult to detect hotspots of microbial contamination can occur. So with the COVID-19, it continues to decimate the global aviation sector at its peak. More than 16,000 passenger jets were grounded worldwide, according to an industry researcher. Many of these aircraft have been in active storage with some fuel remaining in the tanks. Although that fuel is often treated with biocide, the threat of microbial contamination still exists. This is because when fuel is warm for extended periods, 
uh, without being in flight and fuel is so static so hot spots of contamination can occur and are very difficult to detect but how can the operators ensure that the planes are full are fuel and safe when operations begin and how can they manage contamination testing regimes when scattered aircraft are scattered all over airfields away from usual testing lab facilities so microbial contamination is not a new problem for aircraft and the vast majority of airlines test for this phenomenon in line with International Air Transport Association or IATA and manufacturer guidelines. Now the disastrous COVID-19 pandemic has left their assets out of service and strewn across airfields around the world. Microbial contamination covers a multiple types of orgasm or, or organisms. I beg your pardon. Including <laughs> Bacteria, I'm not going to live that one down. No, wow. you are not. <laughs> Mold and yeast. <laughs> Cut that one out. On the, right. okay. the presence of which will vary according to oh, no. individual site conditions. <laughs> We can cut that one out in post. Based on factors including temperature and humidity, uh, the lead organisms are most often heronia. Don't, don't, don't look at the chat room, Carlos. Which is, I'm not going to at all. This acts as a binding material for other microorganisms to cling to, which results in the formation of layers of biomass in the fuel. This can block filters and fuel lines according to maintenance activities, costs and risks to safety. Furthermore, the, uh, and particularly important with grounded aircraft, these biomass layers generate organic acids that pit corrode metal surfaces as they touch causing damage to fuel tanks and other ancillary equipment if left untreated this can lead to costly damage to structures potentially cost millions of dollars or a complete write-off in extreme cases in normal operation unscheduled aircraft's downtime equates to loss of precious revenue but also the possible additional payout for passenger compensation if flights are significantly uh, delayed this is something I didn't really think about other than that uh, before, <laughs> that uh, with all these aircraft sitting around the world, and let's be honest, most of these are sitting in warm countries yeah. where it is very hot. Um, and I'd imagine that, you know, that they don't, that a lot of the airlines or airliners haven't been drained of all their fuel uh, when they landed. Well, some of them may have been. But, uh, yeah, I never really thought about that. How, um, so I, I think I, I, I knew that uh, unleaded fuel can... Um, taint i mean it, it does so yeah on. i mean I, I ironically i've had that in a generator to believe it or not i had some some fuel in a generator that when we first bought it got it all up and running and then i think and it was it wasn't that long it was about six months where we then sort of tried to fire it up about six months late you're looking at the chat room aren't you i can tell by your smile yeah uh, <laughs> and um we went to uh you're sort of trying to get this thing to sort of like we just could not get it to to fire we tried like new spark plugs and all that thinking something's terribly gone and it just turned out to be literally dirty fuel it was just literally the fuel had got you know de de deteriorated had lost its potency for want of a better word and uh... yeah we we had some here unleaded in a in one mm. of those plastic green plastic um jerry can type of things mm. we have and um that that had gone um, a bit sort of strange, but it had been in there a few years. <laughs> I wish I could read out Jonathan Warner's oh, comment, no, but no, I really no. can't. Uh, <laughs> shall we move on before uh, something goes Normally, to... Normally that's when someone <laughs> types that in the show notes, but yes. obviously these were a story that's pre-written. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, so you can't blame it on that. Normally, it's down to Neb, isn't it? It's normally Neb that's been. Yeah, that can happen. Yes. Yeah, it, it can. It has been known to happen, hasn't it? In fact, earlier this evening. In fact, but we'll gloss over that and move on anyway, as well. Uh, we should be on. Yeah, the so this next story. Yes, 
is aviation based as always right and that's uh, a shock I, for an aviation based podcast i know i know <laughs> and it's it's got nothing to do with that o word but it's all about freighters it, right if you say so okay flight global is the website we we like flight global because the nev likes the font don't we nev yeah. yes atr flies first new build 72-600 freighter for fedex so atr has flown the first example of its newly developed 72-600 freighter a purpose-built cargo version of its larger turbo prop uh, the aircraft was launched three years ago with an order for up to 50 from u.s express freight specialist fedex 30 of the aircraft under the fedex agreements were firm um, ATR had stated at the time that the 72-600F would be would have a large cargo door uh, in the forward fuselage as well as in the aft cargo door uh, and enter service later on this year. Uh, the airframer says that the uh, MSN1653 carried out the first flight lasting two hours on the 16th of September from its St. Martin site. During the flight, crew on board... Uh, uh, performed a number of tests to measure the new aircraft's flight envelope and flight performance it adds. Uh, while freighter versions of the ATR are in service, the Dash 600F will be the first cargo ATRs to be delivered uh, delivered to a carrier directly from the assembly. Uh, they will include Class E freight compartments and be capable of holding seven unit load containers or pallets or bulk cargo. Uh, ATR adds that the Dash 600F will have the very latest avionics suite which it says future-proofs the cockpit. Now I don't know a lot about the uh, these these um, well I don't know a lot about anything I know but so what what are the what what is the ATR well, I, I must admit I don't know that name as a as a company so the a ATR um, seventy two is is very popular Stobar as you probably have heard, I've heard of, of them yes seen, yeah, yeah. who fly from South End use these ATR 72s they're very popular um, passenger aircraft Nev have you have you you have flown on one of these yes you? Uh, I think uh, Orini who uh, were flying between Gatwick and Guernsey and Jersey I think I've been on a, a couple of their ATR 42s uh, yes very nice uh, uh, turboprop for you know an hour's worth of flying or something like that yeah very pleasant yeah, I'm just trying to sort of pop. I've got a nice little picture here, actually. I'm just trying to sort of pop it up on the old, uh, on the old screen. Actually, it's um. You've got a few little stats there, haven't you, Matt? On the um. On I, the, I, I can't the do two things at once, Carlos. Oh, okay. If you feel free to read them by all means, but uh... okay. So, <laughs> so the, uh, the 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 freighter version of this uh, this is especially for the Miami Ricks in the uh, chat room. So the forward large cargo door uh, is uh, going to be 2.94 meters by 1.8 meters wide. Uh, aft hin upper hinged cargo door in replacement of standard passenger door, windowless fuselage, obviously, it's a flat, it's a freighter, reinforced floor panels, that's a given, uh, cabin liner with attachment points, cargo loading system capability, uh, integrated state of the art LED lighting. I don't quite know why the, the freight would want to see some LEDs, but and also class E cargo compartment. But um, one of the pictures I actually saw on the on the website for the ATR website had this uh, interior with all the cargo nets. Um, oh yeah, 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 all the way along the uh, the interior, which uh, looked quite good. Mm. But uh, this is good actually to see something that I think this is going to be quite popular. Being you know, it's not a huge, massive, wide-bodied aircraft, but can still hold quite a fair amount of freight. So. I think this will do well for ATR. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice, um, it's 
um, you know, it's it, so the, the size is sort of it's somewhere in between, isn't it? I suppose uh, like a like I mean, it's not. Again, I mean, we've we've said this before, haven't it? I, I never understood why the A, you know, the A three eighty F wasn't a big thing because you'd have thought that that, given the capacity that you, you have with one of those, it would have done. That would have been a, a beautiful thing, wouldn't it? So I mean, this this sort of sits somewhere in between, sort of. Where where would this sit? Are we talking sort of? I'm trying to uh, like a comparison. Are we talking like A three twenty size? That sort of. You know, it's, it's smaller, smaller than the three twenty. It's um, yeah, three nineteen probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. sort of like what I call like middle of the roady sort of type yeah. sort of. But this this for regional freight would be awesome. You know, mm. when you're when you're shipping stuff from one end of the UK to the other, or maybe from the UK to to um, Europe, Amsterdam mm. or somewhere, a brilliant, fantastic size. Uh, you know, ideal size piece of equipment for that kind of job so <laughs> i like that captain cruz has just said in the chat room fun fact you are boarding an atr from the rear as the cargo hold is behind the cockpit doesn't matter for cargo version of course yes and actually i i got caught out slightly because you know i have a, a penchant for seat 1a uh, yes uh, i've heard of that yes. whenever i can <laughs> so i booked mrs nev and myself in seat 1a and 1b i think it was okay uh, and we were the last to board because <laughs> oh, because of the because you were uh, boarding from the right, yeah. Yes, so actually uh, w we weren't the first to board at all. So they no. they boarded the aircraft in a very odd way, but we actually we boarded the aircraft from the rear, um, uh, even though we were sitting at the front. So uh, there, mm, that's, a, that's um, mm. unfortunate. I think is the word. <laughs> I tell you, these aircraft are blooming noisy as well. I'm just are they? As well, yeah, they are, they are very noisy. Gosh. They fly, they fly frequently over here. You can hear them from quite a distance, I will say. Can you? Mm. But popular nevertheless. So moving on to the next story, Nev, which is uh, moving on to the Boeing story for this week, and it's uh, about uh, the 737 for a change. Yes, we haven't heard much about the 737 MAX, have we, for a, a few weeks. But uh, on the BBC website, uh, it says that two fatal crashes of Boeing 737 MAX aircraft were partly due to the plane maker's unwillingness to share details a congressional investigation has found. It blames a culture of concealment at Boeing, but says the regulatory system was also fundamentally flawed. Boeing said it had learned many hard lessons from the accidents, but families of the victims accused the company and the regulator of continuing to hide information. The US report is highly critical of both Boeing and the regulator, the FAA. Boeing failed in its design and development of the MAX, and the FAA failed in its oversight of Boeing and its certification of the aircraft, the 18-month investigation concluded. The Boeing 737 MAX has been grounded since March 2019 after two crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia, causing the deaths of 346 people. The nearly 250-page report found a series of failures in the plane's design combined with, combined with regulatory capture an overly close relationship between Boeing and the federal reg regulator which comprised the process or sorry which compromised the process of gaining safety certification the crashes were the horrific combination of a series of faulty technical assumptions by Boeing engineers uh, a lack of transparency on the part of Boeing's management and grossly insufficient oversight by the FAA. Well, Tom Burridge is the transport correspondent at the BBC and he gives some analysis. Uh, he says that cost-cutting that jeopardised the safety of the flying public, a culture of concealment over issues with the aircraft, trouble mismanagement, misjudgments, just a snapshot of the stinging charges against Boeing. 
but the FAA comes off almost as badly. U.S. representative find it guilty of inherent conflicts of interest and grossly insufficient oversight. More seriously, they say that the regulator was in effect in Boeing's pocket and that the FAA management overruled its own technical and safety experts at the behest of Boeing. Boeing admits mistakes were made and it now wants to focus on getting the 737 MAX back into the air, saying that the revised design of the aircraft has been thoroughly scrutinised. Regulators in Europe and the US are relatively close to recertifying the MAX, but this is one of the biggest safety scandals facing a private company in modern times. And, in, and other investigations are outstanding, including a giant lawsuit from the relatives of those killed in the second crash in Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Well, we certainly know that there's been a lot of criticism of the FAA and how close they were to Boeing on this particular uh, subject. I'm not going to go into any more detail about that because we've, we've heard it so often before, mm. but uh, mm. uh, it's, it's a, a, an amazing revelation, frankly, isn't it? Agreed. Yeah, very much agreed. Yeah, it's not too, It's not great. It's not been a great year for for us all, really. To be fair, but it's not been a a great year for Boeing at all. No, indeed. I, I mean, and that, that, I mean, it's quite a damning um, report, really, isn't it? I mean, it, it certainly isn't complementary um, to to the process. I, I don't know. Part of me isn't surprised, given some of the rumours and stuff that we have heard along the way. But I mean, I don't think this saga is over yet. I think we've still got you know much more to more left to play on this, but then perhaps that's something for for comment with uh, people more experienced than us when it comes to to stuff like this. Really, it's um, yeah, not not a good day for Boeing, as you say. Mm -mm. So the next story this week is on the BBC.co.uk website, and uh, this is about a story uh, that uh, happened a few years back now. Actually, this one, but uh, this is actually I think they done. Did they do a was there a documentary series or a program done on this one, Nev? Yes, there was. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Shetland Super Puma crash. Crew would have failed training exam. So, cast your minds back. The crew of a helicopter which crashed with the loss of four lives would have failed a training exam with the same manner of flying an inquiry has heard. So, the uh, there's a list of people who obviously died with this crash. And... Um, uh, which is a, a ter terrible shame. But aviation consultant Mark Pryor said the speed of the helicopter was too low on the approach. He told the inquiry that they also did not scan their instruments effectively. On the 10th day of uh, the FAI, Mr. Pryor was asked what would have happened if the manner of the approach had been replicated in the examination tests. They would certainly have failed the test, he said. They would have perhaps have been put through some more training in a second test before they were allowed to get back to full flying. The helicopter hit the sea on its approach to Sumbra and overturned, but didn't sink as flotation devices were armed just in time. The crew was not uh, using full automation functions and their speed had dropped. So Mr. Pryor, who himself had flown the approach into Sumbra, said the crew were not compliant with the operations manual and the approach did not meet standard of reasonable care. He said that they didn't achieve a stable approach and that that left them more prone to any errors in scanning instruments. He said, in my opinion, the, the crew were not scanning the airspeed and indeed other instruments for a period of time. 
The helicopter would not have crashed if the pilot had stabilised the speeds at 80 knots on approach to the airport, he said. If they had flown at 80 knots, that would have allowed them to continue, he said. Mr Pryor said he believed the crash would not have happened if any link in the complete chain of events that day had been broken. Sarah Darnley, Duncan Munro and George Allison drowned after the helicopter hit the water. Gary McCrozen, who uh, had a cardiac arrest, died from heart failure following the crash. The inquiry has also heard that one survivor, Samuel Bull, who was believed to be 28 at the time, later took his own life after suffering post-traumatic stress. The inquiry, which was previously delayed to, to coronavirus measures, continues before Derek Pyle, Sheriff Principal of Grampian, Highland and Islands. So I remember the programme, actually. I think I'm, I'm trying to remember, Nev, was it one of the uh, air crash investigation series? I'm not sure if one? it was, but uh, yes, it, it, it's certainly been, I'm sure it's been on, on the television, but... Um, yeah, and it's just another demonstration, isn't it, that an accident is hardly ever, in fact, almost never, the cause of one thing. It's a, a chain mm. of events uh, that, that come together. And, so I think uh, the visibility was bad as well, I think, on this um, this day as well, wasn't it? I think yeah, approach, yeah, yeah, a lot of factors working against mm. them. Um, and, you know, I, my, my knowledge of rotary operations isn't, you know, very great at all. But, um, yeah, clearly stuff has gone on here which which shouldn't have happened but also uh, i think that the you know it, it's the the things that went on afterwards you know the 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 people that were were, were fatally um uh, or, or injured but also uh, things that had happened afterwards so it's uh, yeah a, a, a absolute tragedy um so but uh, i'm hoping once again that lessons uh, are learned from these sorts of things Mm. I remember um, I actually had the chance to do some of that cold water training um, not too far down the road from where we live here in, mm. in a test centre in Lowestoft at the college. And they had one of those dunk tanks with the, um, you know, the helicopter kind of um, framework and they drop you in the sea and then rotate. And uh, we had the chance to do uh, said uh, part of said course whilst I was at college many years ago now. Oh, wow. But um, there, that was... Come man, like I still remember now, it was one hell of an experience. And that's, you know, when you've got people around you with, um, you know, who are all trying to do this, it's still a really, really scary experience. I think it's very frightening, isn't it? And and one of my um, industry colleagues that used to do a lot of work on the oil rigs flying out of Aberdeen uh, to, to the various oil rigs in the North Sea, he was telling me that uh, all the training he has to do, uh, and he said, no matter how many times you do it, it's still frightening. It really is. Tony S says in the chat room, are there any happy stories in this week's show? No, none whatsoever. <laughs> <He's> the... <laughs> well, we have got a, an amusing one, actually, right. now, haven't we, to, uh, to finish off. And I'm glad we have. Uh, it's one of those and finally stories, I think, isn't it? Uh, this is on creativeboom.com and it says, ever been annoyed by your fellow passengers on a flight? In my case, often. Uh, the etiquette of flight an austere 12-step guide to better behaviour when flying commercially may put a f smile on your face. A limited edition signed coffee table book created by uh, Floridian, uh, sorry, Floridian artist Kayla Burke. It takes a comical approach to issues we often face during travel. The design style pays homage to vintage airline culture 
while remaining modern in its feisty diction. Uh, this fun project might sound like a departure for a fine artist, but Kayla's career has so far been anything but Sani. Uh, having previously studied advertising and public relations at university and worked as a junior art director in the advertising world, she spent a few years juggling graphic freelance work with fine art until finally merging the two avenues. Fast forward to the present day, and I've actively been a full-time fine artist for nearly five years, she says. The diversity of disciplines is no accident, but more of a life philosophy. I was extremely uh, multifaceted as a child, very cerebral, she says. Uh, I liked a vast array of music, literature and art, and it was something I was often criticised for. Being too many different things makes people uncomfortable. It means that they can't categorise you. You don't fit into their comprehensible boxes. But now at the age of 30, she sees the value of sticking to her guns. My signature style that pervades all my art is a literal creative representation of this trait, she says. My markings encapsulate many different quotes, lyrics and imagery, from vastly different entities in life, yet they all fit together as one cohesively themed work. So uh, this looks quite a bit of a, a fun book to me. It's called yeah. The Etiquette of Flight. And um, <laughs> my only surprise is that it wasn't me that, that wrote it because I could, uh, I could write several <laughs> you've got, You've got a few facts on this book, though, haven't you, Nev? How, <laughs> how much is this book? Sorry, how much is it? Mm. Um, oh, it's a good question. And just at that vital moment, my screen froze, so I can't <laughs> actually tell you. <laughs> oh, okay, it's not just me that that happens to. <laughs> so, yes, that's, that's not, not quite so, what is it? So the uh, book the book itself, if you want to purchase this book, you've got to be quick because it's limited to 100 copies that are signed by the artist, yeah. uh, Kayla Burke. And uh, it'll set you back a cool $105 How much? for the book. Ooh which is around about 81 quid in these uh, these times. And uh, some of these uh, lines in the book, there's one line in the book uh, that we picked. Uh, the book has such uh, kind of quips as, there is an unspoken rule. Both the aisle and window seat passenger gets rights to their outside armrests. The middle person, since they are stuck in the endless middle struggle, get the rights to both. Hmm. Right. Nev, uh, there, uh, what would you add to this book for your for? for uh, well, uh, how think, do you, how do you expect passengers to to be when you're well, on? Well, no, I, I, it can go on, can't it? But uh, I think Captain Cruz has hit the nail on the head in the chat room, where he says flying flying etiquette disappeared in the late nineties, along with hot food and economy and smoking <laughs> beer. <laughs> can <laughs> you imagine? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose, I, I mean, I, I've, I've been um, on a flight. I mean, I'm old enough, unfortunately, to remember, um, you know, when <laughs> when smoking was allowed on f in the flight, wasn't mm. it? Because mm. they used to stick you at the back, didn't they? Where, yeah. where it was, which is where my parents always used to go. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it, it's, almost, it's such an alien concept now, isn't it? Honestly, the, when you look back at how, how the economy class... Um, cabins interiors were back in the sort of early mid mid 80s mm. and stuff honestly the the whole the whole thing is so different it's so different to how it is now with economy you know the, the seats back then were like were like armchairs in, in economy on, on some of the wide-bodied aircraft um never i mean you can probably remember back to the original kind of british caledonian kind of uh, days dan air yeah. 
well, yes, and it really was quite a you know prestigious thing, wasn't it? Going going flying, rather than jamming people in with minimum pitch seats as we try to do now in in economy. But uh, yeah, those were the days. And I I also remember uh, when I flew to Cairo as well. I flew on Egypt Air. Um, when was that? That was probably the early 2000s, I think it was. Um, and uh, they still allowed smoking on the aircraft. <laughs> uh, not that long ago. Well, I suppose it was. It was 20 years ago, but uh, mm. it doesn't seem that long ago, does it? But uh, yeah. No, Believe it or not, Matt, economy seats used to recline. Wow. Quite far as well. Wow. <laughs> can you, can you, well, quite. It's uh, cl clearly, I, 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 you know, got back in an aeroplane too late. That's, that's clearly what went wrong there, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, I think, uh, didn't we run a story not that long ago where there was all the, where it was like, you know, everybody was wearing, you know, sort of suits and ties and things, you know, to, to go yes. flying because it was an event, wasn't it, back then? Yeah. 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 Actually, Tony S in the chat room uh, says Britannia and Dan Air. Those were the days. Those were indeed mm. the days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know. I know what you mean. Uh, right. So we're going to uh, we're going to try something here. I don't know if this is going to work because I'm having trouble getting through. Um, but there's a new. Um, I don't know what what's the word that I'm looking for here, guys. Uh, stream a new stream, stream if you like. Um, they've been going about five or six weeks now. They've been doing a lot of stuff at various air shows um, for a long time. To be fair, what we're going to do? We're going to say hi to. Um, we're doing our live link right now. Um, so this is going out live okay. with the guys over at um, Plane Talking UK. Hello. So. What we're going to do, we're going to do um, a bit of um, a history of how uh, Airshow World actually got started. So um, it all started no audio, around about um, okay. 11 years ago. What um, first um, got go. me interested in this, or even to put just one video on YouTube, was um, my daughter. Um, she was actually um, invited by the uh, BBC, of all um, people, to have a day with um, the Red Arrows, which... Um, at the time, she was just nine years old, but um, she had this amazing talent for taking these fantastic aircraft photographs. After that, um, she was then invited to do the Royal International Air Tattoo uh, official calendar. I mean, hey, we're talking a nine-year-old um, girl here to have the opportunity to do that. And that's exactly what happened. And it went on sale. And um, fortunately, she, um, she was paid for it. And it um, gave her the opportunity to buy this fantastic um, camera equipment, still cameras and what have you. So um, that was all down to Heather. After the uh, first video that um, I, I actually put on, say this, remember, it was 11 years ago, I thought, hey, why don't I put some of the um, air show uh, videos on that um, I've uh, taken in the past? Because um, I've been taking videos for a very, <laughs> a very long time. In fact, I used to be the official um, filming man, if you like, um, for RAF Waddington. And um, hey, if you want to see any of the, all of these videos, they're all on air show world uh, youtube channel okay also of course um one of the guys in the chat box was um asking earlier um how can we get in touch with um air show world well there's a couple of ways you could do that i've got a facebook page um which of course hey it just happens to be called air show world so um check certainly check that out and of course um we've got a twitter um page as well. well it's not a page you know it's on twitter so of course air show world but most important of all is the um the little bit um 
well, the little bit, which is uh, it's becoming quite a big thing for me at the moment. Uh, it's taking on all um, all of our time. Is um, of course Asia World YouTube channel. So um, hey. The most important things are, please subscribe. That is really appreciated. And if you see any videos, always give it that little bit of a, a thumbs up. It helps with the uh, the ratings, how YouTube um, organizes everything. And um, if you select the option to get notifications, you'll, you should know the moment that um, we actually uh, go live. So that's um, a little bit of a history lesson, or if you like. <laughs> it's like being back at school, isn't it? And um, But i tell you what we're going to do now for the guys over at um, Plain Talking UK. I promised I would do a replay of this, so let's start it right back from the beginning. So this is um, going out live, but also for the people who are um, going to watch um, the actual um, audio version of um, the Plane Talking UK, you'll hear the aircraft sounds and all the rest of it. So, what is it? So, it was the arrival of this beautiful A321. It came up from France. So, let's let the video roll, shall we, guys? So, it's East Midlands Airport. And this came in on the um, Wednesday afternoon. The reason for this um, coming in was to pick up the... Um, Australian cricket team um, so this was on Wednesday while they were still playing and as you see it that's um, beautiful I love that hey it's even got the pretty lights on there on the uh, runway looking good so that's when the uh, aircraft actually arrived on um, Wednesday afternoon and Ethan was with me as well he as well he was filming that this was um, yesterday morning and uh, actually got to East Midlands Airport around about 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, but this didn't leave till about one, about 1.40 yesterday. So on board at the moment, you've got the Australian cricket team. And in that aircraft, it is absolute luxury. It really is. La Compagnie. And I uh, hope I've got the pronunciation right on that. I've been saying it for around about 100 times recently. And each time I get it wrong. I think I got it right that time what a bonus so there we go you see it taxiing out and this time unlike the day before absolute beautiful blue skies and sunshine so there we go just about to taxi down well it taxied down and it's just about to take off so let's let you hear the sound of those engines just turn the volume up on that just a little bit so you can hear it so there she goes taxiing down the runway and just about to rotate this beautiful a321 I mean, we we absolutely love this aircraft, don't we? I mean, we we we, I've, we, we ran a story not that long ago, didn't we, about about the La Compagnie? So for anybody that uh, missed that on the live stream um, yesterday, it was um, a long wait, um, but hey, we had a lot of people uh, um, watching yesterday, all patiently waiting for this aircraft. But we had plenty of other things to fill in. So anyway. That just about, um, I think, wraps things up with our Plain Talking UK um, link. Hey guys, I hope that uh, all went well with um, you guys. And um, many, many thanks. And um, 
I hope we uh, catch up with you again very, very soon. So, Matt and the guys, I'll hand it all back to you. Thank you. <laughs> There we go. Look at that. the consummate professional, eh? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, the, the, he's going to be uh, live from Mildenhall hopefully next week, uh, and we're going to try and do uh, a, a proper live link uh, to, to talk about there. And as I say, we'll hopefully uh, have a chat with Armando about that as well. But uh, yeah, Airshow Airshow World. Uh, search for them on YouTube. Uh, some great videos on there. Um, I, I highly recommended it if because let's be honest, there's naff all on television at the moment, isn't there? Still uh, got the audio, Matt. Have you? Oh, guys. Oh, yeah. There you go. It's gone now. It's all right. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. I keep forgetting you get a different mix that's of series a, anyway that's the problem we, have, we haven't got john here yeah, to um, shout at me yeah shout, indeed yeah. there we are so uh, what do you reckon to that nev yeah very good no nice act isn't it yes mm. very swish looking indeed yes indeed definitely yeah, just, right uh, okay it, we, we'll move uh, back on to our show now and it's a series that we've been very much uh, looking forward to to sharing with you and uh, and uh, nev uh, you're in charge of this bit yeah, thanks, Matt. Well, here we go with part two of the interview with Ian Palmer. So if you remember last week at the end of part one, Ian spoke about his drinking problem in a very candid fashion and also the problems that he was having away from the aircraft and flying itself. So a quick recap about Ian's background. Well, he's an accomplished musician. He first began to play drums at the age of nine, inspired by his two uncles who also play drums, Steve and Carl Palmer, as in Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Oh my goodness. Ian has operated as a first officer for a number of airlines and in fact as a captain on the A330. He flew with Captain Nick on a couple of sectors and it's Nick himself that presents this series of four interviews with Ian. So many thanks again to both of these gentlemen for providing the original material. So let's have a catch up with Ian and Nick and see where they got to. Thanks very much indeed uh, for coming and speaking to us again, Ian, in this uh, that is part two of I, what I suspect will be uh, four parts of uh, your interview. Um, I, we left the last uh, story uh, at the point at which you uh, were going to move into civil aviation. How did you achieve that? Well, I was quite obviously very focused on what I wanted to do regarding flying and I kind of knew the ultimate aim where I'd like to get to and that was that image was the image of sitting on the jump seat of the Boeing 747 as we went off to um, Boston so that was the ultimate aim and speaking to my friend who was the uh, the captain on that flight we were discussing flying schools which was the best option and I think around that time we decided that to go on an integrated course of training possibly would have been it was rather the the, the best course of action. So we um, spoke about it and I decided at that point that British Aerospace Flight Training in Hareth would be uh, where my future lay as far as um, flight training. So I uh, went to um, Hareth. They just started in Hareth actually. The school previously was in Presswick and I was one of the first courses there. And this was during a time where they switched to the uh, JAR requirements I uh, from the CAA. Whereabouts so is this uh, flying school? This is in Hareth in southern southwest Spain. 
Oh, Spain. Okay, right. Yeah. So, which is a beautiful climate for, mm. for flying, of course. So, I think the pro the, the problems they had was get, getting guys finished um, through the tr course of training in Presswick because the weather in Scotland because the weather was so poor. So they moved everything down to Harath in southwest Spain, and uh, that's where I started. And you know, I was basically. Um, under underconfident when it came to flying at that point and didn't realize that I could actually do it because I and achieve what I wanted to achieve I was with guys there who had been to um, Trinity College in Dublin these guys uh, one of the one of the guys on my course was doing a degree in aeronautical engineering was simultaneously doing his ATPL exams um, oh good super, lord super super bright guy and this sounds was a like a bit of an overachiever a little bit that way. Yeah, a few of the guys there were. It was very competitive. And there were 17 people on the course when I joined or wanted to be pilots and five of us graduated. Um, so they either got chopped or wow. they were decided themselves, this is not what I can do. So it was quite challenging. Um, so I with basically no education at the time, although that being said, I did sort of go back and go to school before we went there in order to prepare and get my head around what, what was to be expected of me. Um, so... I eventually did graduate from British Aerospace, but my timing and being a drummer, of course, you'd expect it to be pretty good. My timing was not quite so good really? because September the 11th, 2001 had happened as we were doing our final set of exams. So we all came out of this last exam. And I remember it was a human performance and limitations exam, you know, one of the ones which everyone assumed at the time was one of the easier exams and we were really happy great to walk into the tv room to see the events of 9-11 unfolding and it very quickly dawned on us that oh maybe we're not going to get a job after that had happened there was a massive downturn in the aviation sector so well it was uh, let me ask you was uh, the flying school linked to an airline or were you doing this and then just throwing yourself open onto the or sorry mm. throwing yourself onto the open market no my dad was really support my parents were really supportive so i was self-funded so you're self-funded and uh, no. wow and no. so you really needed to queue up with all the other pilots and yeah. hopefully get a job somewhere and now there were none to be had and you know, and I think a lot of us now, as you will maybe relate, Nick, um, you know, we have people who contact us about how did you get into the airline world? What did you do in order to get your first job? And I don't think any two people have the same course, actually. Everyone has a different, slightly different path as to how it works out. Yep. So my path was that I decided to become an, a flying instructor. So I was oh, a flying... at the same school. No, sorry, no. This was in um, Wolverhampton at a place oh, called wow. um, Hapney Green, a lovely, quaint little fly, a little, little airfield, which was fantastic for uh, the early days of learning to you know, basically be the captain of your own light aircraft. Excellent. You know, flying the, the Great Unwashed. And these were some of the happiest days, I think, of my 20 years of flying. So, you know, I graduated from British Aerospace in 2001 and very quickly then did the instructor's rating and I was flying a PA-28 and I remember now actually having all of these people come along the public to do these what they call trial lessons so we'd take off and the great thing about um, Hapley Green Airport is that if you fly to the south if you turn left and you see some big houses well it stands a good chance you're probably in Birmingham's controlled airspace but if you turn <laughs> right uh, if you turn right well you can't go wrong because you're straight over Shropshire and towards Wales so where it's the uh, open FIR, so you can really do whatever you want to do, which was great for me 
um, and for doing it for doing the instructing and uh, for, for the students so I used to remember I used to take the guys when they used to come for their induction or their trial lesson um, straight out and fly down the river seven and see if I could get them to find Worcester excellent and would fly overhead Worcester and fly back but that was great experience but I realized very quickly that you know there's it was a great stepping stone but I wondered how I would get to the next level with it and what I did was uh, or what rather what the flying school decided to do was they wanted to get into corporate aviation which was something of course which I never really considered but I you know I thought well thank you very much we'll go along with this and I went to Italy to learn to fly the Piaggio 180 which is a fantastic uh, corporate aeroplane. It's a pusher propeller. It's got these Pratt and Whitney PT6 engines, uh, but it's a super high performance turboprop. Basically, a, a single engine? No, it's a, it's a twin engine aircraft. So um, uh, one at the front, one at the back. No, so it's got uh, so the, it's a mid wing. So yeah. the uh, PT6 is attached to the wing, and, but they were it's a pusher propeller. So the oh, propeller was at the back, okay. uh, but it also had what they called a forward wing, which it wasn't a control surface. So it's, it's not a canard as uh, maybe some of the military aircraft would have had. So this was just a forward wing. Um, but it was great because for the passengers, and it would take sort of six people in the passenger cabin, but they could stand up in this uh, airplane, wow. which was great because it was a, a mid-wing and a wing was at the back with the forward wing obviously at the front. So um, so that was great experience. So I'd go and unlike the aviation, or sorry, the airline industry where you would have your very much a set roster in that sector, you were of corporate aviation, you would, um, and I was flying for um, a company called Fox Air. Um, so what happened basically was the flying school decided that they were going to get this aeroplane. They sent uh, four of us off to Piaggio to do the type rating. I was really serious about wanting to you know, get this type rating and get through the course. And the other guys maybe weren't quite so serious. So they didn't, um, didn't achieve very much, but um, the flying school subsequently <laughs> didn't end up taking an aeroplane. However, I was offered a job with Piaggio at the factory. Which oh, wow. Amazing. They must so, have recognized some talent there. Well, uh, they were really nice people, but I really, <laughs> I worked hard. I worked Good really for you. hard for Good that. For you. So I remember now, and uh, you'll probably relate to this, Nick, that there was a lot of ex-Air Force or Italian Air Force pilots within that organization. And the chief pilot, whose name was Giuliano Corrado, uh, he was an ex-104 Starfighter pilot. Oh, uh, the Widowmaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, some of the other guys... Um, who were involved with the sort of production and the, and the testing of the aircraft were ex-Italian uh, Air Force Tornado pilots. Oh, excellent. So they were an interesting bunch. I um, bet. Yeah, so that was a really good experience. So, I mean, there you would literally go on a tour. So you would take off from uh, where we were, Geneva um, and Bologna were the two bases. And we'd take off and we wouldn't know where we'd end up. We used to go, I remember we used to fly the uh, Ferrari Formula One people around so at the time it was uh, oh Jean wow Tart. did you meet anybody interesting yeah i did right flew um jean tolt uh who was at that time the team manager Excellent. So, um uh, barricello and schumacher were the drivers when i was there so that was uh, you met really them weird. both yes we flew oh, them fabulous much. and you're not really meant to dive divulge that now but it's a long time ago so yeah i'm happy to oh say yeah that's now what we, uh, that's what Sh we did. what was shuey like he was um he was very 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 lovely but very quiet 
um, but very studious and a real um, a real thinker. Um, and at the time, I remember he was doing a degree, I think, in some sort of uh, aeromo- uh, sorry automotive engineering. And wow. so he was had a big say in the design of the car and um, stuff, which is where above my head. And I do remember him saying, actually, if I can uh, work on the design of the car with the with Ferrari and I can just get even a zero point zero 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 one percent improvement in the performance of the car, then that makes a big difference in his world. So they really deal. I mean, anybody, you know, I'm impressed with anybody that's any good at anything, you know, and he really was top of his game. So really quite inspiring. Absolutely. That's quite remarkable. Mm. So where, where from there? So I went, I realized then having spoken to my friend who I went on the, the jump seat on the 747 with, he said, Ian, you know, you need to get yourself into an airline. That's all you need to be doing. You know, he didn't really understand the corporate world and I must admit it's something which had never occurred to me, but it was very enjoyable and it was a great experience. But um, from there, I joined a company uh, called Now Airlines and they were based in Luton and they had a very short existence. Um, they made a couple of, um, I think I think you probably agree, schoolboy errors in that they were setting up as a low cost airline from Luton and they decided to lease two 737s from EasyJet. <laughs> so of course yeah you know, how's that gonna you know, work yeah exactly so they never they never saw the airplanes that whole thing just folded without even getting airborne um mm. but however that being said um we got, we all went to a company called globespan they took us all on mass and that was my first which was a company based in scotland and i oh. did some of the first flights for that company on the um the boeing 737 there the boeing 737 300s they had initially then they had some boeing 737 800s directly from the manufacturer and that was great doing the base training around uh, the uk just taking myself and uh, a training captain took this airplane out for the day going around to a few airfields and we went around to presswick and down to doncaster and back around just doing the sectors and it was really good fun i was um, going to say that sounds like that an was, absolute jolly well it was it was it was you know you'd, you'd park up somewhere go for a cup of tea and a sticky bun and uh, jump back in your airplane <laughs> a bit like the days you did with the cesta 152 and and all of that stuff so Excellent. so that was a great experience um and then they also had some in, an interesting airplane actually a boeing 737 600 which was the new generation aircraft but it was a very short airplane now the problem with this airplane was that it had a toilet at the very back of the airplane no toilet at the front so you know they always say drink lots of water and i remember so i drank lots of water like a good boy and i remember always waiting for the passengers to get off as soon as you'd landed because you were just bursting to go to the toilet <laughs> so it was a, a bit of a bit of a trudge to the back so i always remember that but um so that was a nice little um a uh, nice little aeroplane, actually, a little 737. So I always remember that the, uh, but I think the 737-300 was probably my favorite of the 737s to fly. It was really well balanced. It was a really lovely, lovely aircraft. The, I always thought the 737-800 was quite twitchy in roll. And then the 737-600 being a shorter fuselage was quite twitchy in um, pitch. Always took quite a lot of trimming for each um, power change. Interesting, isn't it? Um, mm. So they flew quite differently, but I, th- I guess they're all on the same type certificate. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're all the, um, a single type rating. 
um, and it was just the NG differences basically that you would do. But um, hey, it seems a long while ago now because of course I'm a, a proper Airbus convert. So having that <laughs> control column is very different to obviously having the side stick. And I remember at the time, how would I get on flying with a side stick? But um, yeah, it's quite, as you know, it's quite second nature very, very quickly, isn't it? And it's great for long haul, that's for sure. Oh yes, yes. So uh, was that uh, airline going for a while? Did you uh, that, stick with them? Well, I, I, I did, but um, I had an experience. And that was that um, I was still quite fond of the alcohol. And I was in a bar one night in uh, Glasgow with my uh, contemporaries, my colleagues, and I had a phone call. And my father was on the other end of the phone. And he said um, uh, he was very upset and said, uh, uh, son, um, your brother has been in a car accident and I don't think he's going to make it. And uh, wow. I sort of realized that emotionally and personally there was maybe some sort of issue then because I, and it's really quite sad to say this now, but I didn't feel anything. I was happy to keep drinking. I didn't have any feelings or anything, any sort of, it was really strange. Um, but So you, you didn't feel concern or worry or? no not at all and i said to my friends who i was with oh that was my dad who just said my brother's been in the car accident and he said he doesn't think he's going to make it and i was like well who's going to get the next beer wow and it was really weird my friends were there with like their jaws on the floor and it was awful the um the person that i turned into um around that time and then all would start to unravel and i'd start to realize eventually what actually was was going on so this kind of was a moment of realization for you mm. you had how were your relationships with your work colleagues going and everything was, like that well i was definitely um mr party central that's for sure i mean one thing i will say and it was something which really does need to be mentioned and that is that never at any point would i be on an aircraft uh, unable to function sure but i certainly spent a lot of my time off the aircraft enjoying myself and of course, with the condition, this condition gets worse and never better. That's very interesting. Um, mm. so your the did, you, did your brother make it first of all? Did yeah. Well, he was in a coma for thirteen days, and what happened was he pulled up to drive um, to negotiate across a dual carriageway, and a car bashed into him from behind he had the, the wheel turned the steering wheel turned so he then went into the dual carriageway into the line of oncoming traffic and a car then hit the side the passenger side of his car at about 60 miles an hour and pushed the a-frame of the car his car into his head so he had oh, epilepsy and all sorts and then he was um yeah it was you know so so lucky and this was sort of the early 2000s this happened 2006 around there um uh, yeah, pretty horrific. <laughs> so I just see him so grateful that he made it. Uh, but of course, you know, he does suffer with epilepsy now and does suffer the emotional effects afterwards. And um, at that time, that really affected my parents. And my parents then, uh, they were both diagnosed very quickly with cancer. Oh, hell. And um, so around that time, I decided to leave Globespan and I applied for another job in my hometown, Birmingham. 
Yeah. Uh, so I worked for Monarch Airlines and I did the convert type conversion then uh, to fly the Airbus A320, but mainly the A321 actually in Monarch in Birmingham, um, which was a new experience. But, you know, as I said at the start of the interview, I never... The problem is you can you can do all the geographicals. I can go to Scotland, I can go to Birmingham, but ultimately the problem will always be between my two ears. I'll always carry the problem with me or this. Yeah, it is a problem. It's a condition. Um, so I was working for Monarch and even then, you know, struggling to contain, you know, that lifestyle. Had you mm. recognized the fact that you were an alcoholic at that point? Well, I've since since realized that I was an alcoholic. Uh, I was born alcoholic. And there's a couple of indications, and I truly believe this. Um, And it's a condition for life. But it is a condition. It's a little bit like diabetes, that we can control it, but we can't cure it. That's Um, a very good analogy, and one that I considered myself. Yeah. You're at a a real uh, turning point in your life here. Um, you're back drinking, uh, you're mm-hmm. holding down an airline job, um, but you obviously need to change your life somehow. And um, I think we'll be able to talk about that at length uh, uh, next week, if that's okay. Mm, absolutely. Oh, great. Thank you. Man. All right. Mate. Chat to you next week. Brilliant. See you then. Wow, I talk, yeah. I talk about the worst run of luck. We, I mean, yeah, we were saying and, in between uh, there. I mean, if... Ian's honesty and his candidness uh, about the whole thing is is incredible, and uh, yeah. we'll hear more about that uh, in part three next week. Indeed, indeed. Looking forward to that. Yeah, I said it before last week. You know, I, I listened to this series on uh, on on another aviation podcast. But it's it's <laughs> on APG, but it's nice to have that visual content as well mm-hmm. alongside um, yes. you know. Yes. So yes, our, our our personal thanks to both Ian and uh, Nick for putting that together for us, and of course Nev for sitting there and stitching it all together because like with three camera angles and all that, that, that can't have been the easiest. Uh, it took a while. It yeah, a, a time-consuming mashup, shall we say? <laughs> oh dear. So it's time to move on to the military news segment this week. And uh, Armando sent some videos in, so if everyone is ready... Indeed. Let's go. First military story from thedrive.com, as the United Kingdom prepares its next defense review, the Integrated Review of Security, Defense, Development and Foreign Policy, experts close to the program are increasingly talking about a significant cut in the country's orders for the F-35B Lightning. Uh, Reports in the British media last month suggested that the United Kingdom may only buy 70 of the F-35Bs rather than the original 138 aircraft that were originally planned. Although a reduction in numbers had been long rumored, the story in the Times cited sources close to the government's defense review, uh, details of which are planned for release a little bit later this year. Uh, Meanwhile, the UK Ministry of Defense has steadfastly held to the 138 aircraft figure in its communications. On September 15, 2020, 
a group of experts provided the Defense Committee with an update on the progress made by the UK's F-35 and carrier strike programs, with an eye especially on how they could impact the ongoing integrated review. So to date, the United Kingdom has committed to buying 48 Lightnings by the end of 2025. That comes at a cost of 10.5 billion pounds, according to the National Audit Office. That's the body that scrutinizes public spending. So the target of 138 aircraft purchased across the lifespan of the program was included in the UK government's last strategic defense and security review uh, in 2015. However, the Commons Defense Select Committee later admitted that the figure of 138 uh, was taken following some hesitation. So the UK is purchasing the short takeoff and vertical landing or STOVL variant of the Joint Strike Fighter, which is operated by a mixed personnel, Royal Air Force and Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm Squadrons. The F-35B variant was selected to operate from the Royal Navy's two new Queen Elizabeth-class aircraft carriers. Although, exactly how many jets will regularly deploy on board is still unclear. So decision on the future size of the overall British Lightning Fleet comes at a time when increasing focus is being directed towards the next generation Tempest fighter program, which we've talked about on the show. Uh, that program is being led by the UK with the aim of fielding a Typhoon replacement from somewhere around 2035. So the Tempest project, as we've kind of mentioned, was formally launched under the country's new combat, combat air strategy at the Farnborough International Air Show on July uh, 2018. Well, it's being pursued as a part of the wider Future, air, uh, future Combat Air System Technology Initiative which aims to bring together the Ministry of Defense and industry partners to deliver more than two billion pounds worth of technology investment by 2027. So, ongoing story, we'll see what uh, comes of it in the next couple months. Now, I know we're not uh, mass military experts um, between the three of us here, but I'll tell you what, there's one thing that I would really really love to do and that is that would be to get a chance to go on board uh, the hms queen elizabeth and uh, see these f-35b's uh, in action because it does look awesome and on this story if you get the chance to click on the show notes and click on this story there is a really really good top-down uh, picture that's been taken uh, of uh, hms northumberland hms dragon and hms queen elizabeth uh, with a single f-35b on the deck if you look at the picture it's amazing to see how small the F-35B looks on the deck of the uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth. I don't know if you guys have, uh, have seen this picture on the, on the story. No, I have to confess I haven't. But uh... mm, No, it does look small, doesn't it? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, brilliant. Indeed. Uh, actually, to... Mike is just saying in the chat room here, he was saying that... Um, the uh, F-35 is still an expensive development crisis, like the F-111. Uh, it does a little bit of everything, but uh, doesn't do anything or anything really well. I mean, that's sort of quite true, really, isn't it, in lots of ways. There's also a lot of comment, I should stress, in the chat room about um, a, a Armando's chosen attire. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all, like sponsored by Acme and sponsored by <laughs> sponsored by all sorts of various bits and pieces. And uh, yeah, it's... Uh, 
Yeah, it's the green screen he had set up there was impressive, though, wasn't it? It was. It, it was, was astounding. Yeah, yeah, moving video and everything. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, it's amazing what Zoom will do these days. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so, well, it's all them updates they keep doing on a regular basis. Yeah. Actually, see. actually, Micah from my comment has pointed out that uh, bear in mind the HMS Queen Elizabeth is a small aircraft carrier compared to the US aircraft. Well, we know that, Micah. Yes, I know, know, but because everything, everything, is everything huge in the states is much in the bigger states. than us. Yeah. Oh dear! As I say, it's like yeah. Even their F thirty five Bs are bigger than ours, but that's yeah. because they have Wendy's and we don't. I know, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I believe the phrase goes along the lines of you know, it's it's not the size, it's what you do with it, or something. Or some, something I heard <laughs> once. I, I don't know. Oh, uh, moving swiftly on. <laughs> indeed, uh, Nev, uh, you've got the next military story. Yes, it's on Defence News, and it's all about the Air Force new fighter jet. This is the uh, secret sixth-generation fighter. And the US Air Force revealed this week it, it has secretly designed, designed, built, and tested a new prototype fighter jet. The fighter, about which we know virtually nothing, has already flown and broken records. Uh, the Air Force must now consider how it will buy the new fighter as it struggles to acquire everything from intercontinental ballistic missiles to bombers. The Air Force's head of acquisition, Will Roper, made the announcement yesterday in an exclusive interview with Defence News in conjunction with the Air Force Association's virtual air, space and cyber conference. The Air Force built the new fighter under its Next Generation Air Dominance, or NGAD, program, which aims to build a jet that would supplement and perhaps even replace the Lockheed Martin F-22 Raptor. According to Defence News, the Air Force developed the new fighter in a about a year, a staggeringly short amount of time by modern standards. The Air Force developed a virtual version of the jet and then proceeded to build and fly a full-size prototype complete with mission systems. This is in stark contrast to the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. The X-35, an early technology demonstrator which first flew in 2000, four years after Lockheed Martin signed the contract to build it. It might be better, however, to compare this new mystery jet to the first actual F-35 flighter which flew in 2006. That means it took the Air Force just one year to get to the point with NGAD fighter that it reached in 10 years with the F-35. This appears to be the record the Air Force claims the new plane is smashing, and is probably right. So in fact, we don't know which uh, defence contractor designed and prototyped the new jet, although it's also almost certainly one of the big aerospace giants such as Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman or Boeing. Uh, we don't know when it, where it flew and where it is now. We don't know how many prototypes exist. We don't know what it looks like, what it's called, how fast it flies, how manoeuvrable it is, and what special capabilities it has. In fact, we know nothing about this jet at all. Right. So that's why it's, uh, it's been secretly designed, built, and tested. <laughs> so I'm sure all will re be revealed at, at some, some point. point. Yes, absolutely. This is this Apparently is, it's been uh, designed by Fisher-Price. Okay. Has it? Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, interestingly... Um, as I say, without our Armando here, of course, we have got uh, uh, Uncle Micah has joined us just in time. Uh, he's saying what we don't know is what the difference is in capability with a sixth generation fighter compared to a fifth generation fighter. Um, are they? T is he referring to the previous story? Perhaps he is. Perhaps I'm getting myself in the muddle. Here. Do we need any fighters? God, we're not at war, honestly. <laughs> oh, don't say that. Blimey. <laughs> 
Oh, we are with with war with COVID. Yes, I'm not quite sure. With the six person rule, yeah, I'm not 100 percent sure how how useful um, uh, how useful a (laughs) fighter jet is at um, you know dealing with. I I suppose you could sort of put some kind of disinfectant bomb in it or something, and sort of you know away you go. But uh, yeah, it's it's. I like uh, Jacob Darlington Brown's idea. Sixth generation will probably have milkshake makers and pasta machines. Right, I think that's the future. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I I, I, I like that idea. Clearly a good idea. Uh, last, so, uh, yes. Armando, yeah, Armando has got uh, the last story, and uh, this story we're going futuristic. The commander of Air Force Special Operations Command said on Tuesday that he's not interested in acquiring the prototype tilt rotor aircraft being evaluated in the Army's future vertical lift effort as a potential replacement for the CB 22 Osprey. Army modernization officials are evaluating two experimental aircraft, which we've talked about, under the FVL for the Future Long Range Assault Aircraft, or the FLRAA, which is a Sikorsky Boeing SB-1 coaxial rotor defiant helicopter prototype and Bell Textron's V-280 Valor tilt rotor helicopter prototype. The Army hopes to select one design to replace the venerable UH-60 Blackhawk and go into full rate production by 2030. But even if the Army does select the tilt rotor V-280, Air Force Special Operations Commander Lieutenant General Jim Slife said that the Valor is not advanced enough to replace the CV-22, which is the Air Force Special Operations variant of the V-22 tilt rotor transport. According to him, he says, I don't see the V-280 as a replacement for the V-22, he told the reporters at the Air Force Air and Space the Air Force's Air and Space Symposium. He said, when, it comes, when the time comes for a follow-on to the V-22, I think we are looking for a generation beyond kind of tilt rotor technology, uh, said the general. Uh, he later added on that AFSOC, or Special Operations Command, is looking for an aircraft that will provide speeds closer to jet-like performance, and that they are not just looking at marginal improvement in speed and range and reliability. According to the general, says we are looking at a generational movement for vertical takeoff and landing capability going into the future. Uh, now, General Slife did say that U.S. Special Operations Command will likely be interested in whichever prototype the Army selects for its new FLRAA design, since uh, SOCOM is committed to Army helicopter aviation under the FBL. I know that's a lot of acronyms, but basically, he's saying that the Air Force is not part of the future vertical lift program. And that that is not the type of technology that the General uh, General Slife thinks that they're going to be eventually looking for to replace that V-22. So additionally, he said he wouldn't, or he wouldn't go into specific details, but he did say that there are a number of technology and drive system proposals out there that look like they may be within the realm of possibli- uh, possibility that could provide that generational step ahead in technology to get Air Force Special Operations Command into this jet speed kind of capability. So I know that was a a heavy acronym article, but it's basically saying that, or or actually kind of a reminder that Air Force Special Operations Command is different than United States Special Operations Command, and uh, they may have different uh, cooperative yet competing capabilities, goals for the near future. So there you go. Oh, I, that location, by the way, 
I know. Uh, stuff I'm taking off left, right, the, and Set the, the benchmark now because from now on, we, we need to just go and do the show and we'll all be in different airports. Nev can be at his right. local airport. I'll, you know, we'll, we'll be at uh, Norwich International World. Well, no, I'll need to still be in the studio, mate. It's all very well, these, these lovely, but somebody's got to tie all the feeds together and put okay. them out on YouTube. So you can go and stand in a freezing cold airfield if you like. <laughs> I'll stay in my nice <laughs> studio. Thank you. The trouble, is, the trouble is the nights are drawing in now, so it's, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, it's yeah. dark I think now we may have like... missed the window of opportunity yeah. for this year, it has to be said. Oh, dear. Never mind. Never mind. Okay, shall we move on then to yes, the... Yes, let's move on to the next part of the show. So for those of you who have been watching the show, will have obviously been watching uh, the Plain Truth segment that uh, Matt's been doing with, uh, with Captain Al. And uh, on this week's uh, segment, it's all about weather data. Hello everyone and welcome to Another Plain Truth and this week we're going to be talking about weather. That's quite a broad subject isn't it? Joining me as always is my friend, your friend, it is the legend that is Captain Al. Hi Captain Al. A very good evening Matt. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, as always, and I'm delighted to say that joining us again this week is the lovely chap that is Dan Holly. Hi, Dan. You're too kind, Matt. Good evening. How are you? Living life's eternal dream every single day. There we are. So uh, now we can't have uh, access to an actual trained meteorologist uh, and not talk about weather. So the question that I have for you, gentlemen, this evening is weather how is that data collected and then how is it turned into the charts that i know that al has to use to decide um essentially what route they're going to take uh, you know avoiding things like thunderstorms now this i appreciate this is a really broad subject here but in sort of like languages that very stupid people like me can understand how is the data uh, i know it's obviously it's data that, that that is put together if you like to produce um what you turn into maps but basically what is the process to generate the forecast that we see on the telly yeah so basically we need measurements um, that comes obviously from aircraft but also uh, quite a lot from weather balloons um, they go up twice a day uh, in many locations around the world there's about five locations in the UK and two in Ireland that go up at midnight and midday and, and they measure the, the temperature the pressure humidity and so forth at every level going all the way up uh, to the top of the troposphere, which is the lowest layer of the atmosphere where all the weather happens. Um, so you've got weather balloons, you've got aircraft, you've got buoys uh, floating out over the sea, which are constantly taking measurements, land-based weather stations. There's, you know, there's lo loads of them around uh, many parts of Europe in particular, and also parts of North America. Um, and then you've got things like radar data, which is primarily looking at sort of where it's raining. That gets fed into some models satellite data as well constantly monitoring from space all the various things that are going on around the world as well so lots and lots of different data sets they all get fed into essentially a computer model um, there are many different computer models all run by the different national met agencies uh, around the world as well and, and even here at weatherquest we run our own uh, computer model primarily focused on the uk so all of this observational data gets fed into a numerical weather prediction model and basically a bunch of calculations are then run using this data to try and then simulate what the weather will do going forward in time. But we always say your, your forecast is only as good as the data you actually put into it at the beginning. So if you're missing a lot of data right now, then we won't have a clear understanding as to what's going on right now in order to then 
work out what's going to happen uh, further down the line. So observations are crucial. Run these calculations forward and ultimately you get some output at the other end. Again, another data set telling you what's going to happen at any location around the world at so many hours further ahead into the future. So that data that uh, you've essentially collated and fed into a machine, how does, how does that then turn into the forecast that, that we all see on television? And I know you do a little bit of uh, deputising uh, for our local uh, Look East weather here in, in the east of England. So, I mean, how, how do you go from that data, if you like, to, to predicting what's going to happen, say, tomorrow? Yeah, so the, the data from these computer models comes out, they usually run about four times a day. So every six hours we get new data coming in. Um, it comes in what we call GRIB format or NetCDF. They're just basically different formats for data sets. And from that we can then run scripts to be able to take that data and plot it into a map form so that then we can see what these models are suggesting where the low cloud will be, where the showers and thunderstorms may develop and, and so forth. And then from these maps, we are then able then to see the progression of these weather features uh, across the UK or indeed elsewhere around the world as well. So we would use these, these maps that come from the models uh, to make a forecast, both in, in a visual sense, such as on TV, but also then to write them into scripts for radio and, and for newspapers and that sort of thing as well. And, and obviously this data is crucial for other sectors such as agriculture and indeed avi aviation as well. Indeed, and uh, while we're talking about uh, aviation, the, that information presumably is crucial to you, Al, when it comes to deciding where you're going to, uh, what, what route you're going to take, for example, if you're, if you're flying to, let's say, Hungary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, an awful lot of this is delegated to computer flight planning. So there are a variety of elements to be considered. Uh, first of all, the weather at the point of departure the en-route weather, and the weather at the destination. So, for example, the weather at the point of departure, if it's particularly foggy, then there are going to be delays in departure because the number of aircraft movements will be substantially less than in good visibility. Then the en-route weather, well, that's a couple of factors. Uh, Optimising the route to make use of the upper atmosphere winds, so uh, if we can tag along a jet stream, so that will be a, a column of fast moving air that will be pushing us along. So increasing our speed through the air, uh, thereby reducing the time and the amount of fuel that we burn. Or conversely, if there are headwinds trying to minimize the impact that they might take. And as we've talked about in, in other aspects, that's all three dimensional. So you've got to uh, you know, think vertically and laterally uh, because just deviating, you know, 50 or 60 miles laterally could be the difference between a 60 knot headwind and a 10 knot tailwind. And similarly, uh, in, in a vertical profile, uh, then there's a considerations of significant weather en route. So uh, thunderstorms, uh, turbulence, uh, icing is a, is a big factor. Uh, less so for jet aircraft that are typically flying at high altitudes, but when we have to descend uh, into the lower atmosphere, icing is a consideration. And then whether a destination, so whether it be uh, windy, as we've experienced in recent days here in the UK, that can have a, a significant effect. Um, you know, we had uh, last year, we had Storm Kira that had quite a phenomenal effect on uh, aviation in the UK 
and in the near continent. Um, I was lucky or unlucky, depending on which side of the fence you set on to be flying on one of the days of Storm Kira. So that was quite entertaining, to say the very least. Um, then you have, you know, snow, ice, fog, uh, probably outside of the realms of meteorology of plagues of locusts. Um, but uh, <laughs> you, uh, wait, they, are, they don't are, predict locusts, honestly. I mean, come on. <laughs> no, but there are factors that would be reported that are outside of uh, typical meteorology. Um, so, um, uh, in Met reports for aviation, would be um, smoke. So, if you you know operating somewhere to an airport that's being adversely affected by smoke, so forest fires or uh, industrial fires, they would be in the Met report. And uh, the Met observations for uh, aviation are done uh, half hourly. And as Dan mentioned, the simulations, if you like, the modeling that's done, that's updated four times a day, we use those updates in flight for updated uh, upper winds. So if the wind model changes quite significantly, we'll update those in flight um, so that we get a real-time update as to uh, how the winds are going to affect us for the flight. Typically across Europe, they don't change a lot. Uh, once or twice, they have changed by a couple of minutes in flight time. Um, so, yeah, th th there's an awful lot. And uh, ever-increasingly at airports these days, met observations are actually done by uh, automatic means so unfortunately it used to be the job of air traffic controllers to go out and do the met observations <laughs> they're increasingly done automatically but yeah um, weather and aviation are go hand in glove with each other it, it's quite a big factor in what we do and uh, you know severe weather is is a challenge but so is you know forecasting for example the location of thunderstorms. I'd imagine, Dan, that's that's quite a challenge to accurately predict the start and end time and geographic location of a thunderstorm. Yeah, that's right. And and recently in the UK, we've had a, a whole week of active thunderstorms. Um, and, and as you say, trying to pinpoint exactly where they'll form is, is quite crucial. And, and worth uh, stressing, I guess, the models we've talked about here as I say, every different Met agency runs their own model, and each of those models has slightly different physics that's used, um, slightly different equations. So actually, the output that comes out the other end uh, may differ slightly between each model. So, you know, we look at about 10 different models, I guess, and, and they run every six hours as well. And we are trying to make a forecast from all of these different models and trying to come to some sort of consensus of what the most likely outcome is going to be. But one model may have a thunderstorm over Manchester, for example, whereas another one may have it over Birmingham. So it's trying to, to come up with the, the most likely scenario. Is it going to be Manchester? Is it going to be Birmingham? Or is it somewhere in between? Um, so these models trying to pinpoint where these thunderstorms are. But as a forecaster, you use, uh, I guess, sort of experience over the years as to which of these models tends to handle certain situations better. Um, and then that may sway your, your decision as to which one you perhaps favor to drive the, the story going forward in time. Um, but when it comes to thunderstorms, we often describe it as a bit like uh, a pan of water on, on a stove, for example, on the hob. If you turn the hob on and heat that water, you know bubbles are going to appear at some point, but you don't quite know exactly where the first bubble is going to appear. 
and it's the same with the with convection and thunderstorms you know the risk is there the atmosphere is primed for those to develop you don't quite know exactly where they are so quite often you're looking for surface features if they're what we call surface-based thunderstorms and that is that they are driven by what's going on at ground level so the temperature is rising during the day uh, we get what we call wind convergence which is where if the surface pattern is quite slack the winds may come together in certain areas and that coming together of the winds forces some air to rise and that's where you sometimes generate thunderstorms and that's particularly crucial over high ground for example you quite often see these showers and storms develop, developing over hills and mountains um, so that that's the main thing you can look at you can say yeah i think the chilterns probably will develop these today and then obviously on top of that you've got to then work out if they develop here where will the steering winds blow them and and will they then drift perhaps close to an airport further down the line so there's lots to, to play for and quite often when there are thunderstorms in the forecast it tends to be a bit more broad brush you can highlight certain areas where you think they are most likely to, to develop so certain parts of counties for example um, but you couldn't say specifically I think there will be one in Manchester at three o'clock in the afternoon you would probably say something like there's a risk of them between say one o'clock and, and five o'clock and yeah one may turn up at three o'clock but at least you sort of broaden that risk just in case one were to develop slightly early or, or come in slightly later in the day. Or if you live where we do, you get very excited because it says there's <laughs> going to be thunderstorms and then you get one clap and then that's literally it and you're devastated yep. for the rest of the day. But that's that's the joys of living on the Norfolk Suffolk border, I suspect. Um, so just, just so the... Dan, sorry, sorry, I was going to say, Dan, how do you feel about whether forecasts should be, uh, if you like, the pint glass half full or half empty? Mm. Because one of the, the challenges that we face in aviation, um, obviously we, we have uh, coded forecasts because they all go back to teletype machines and, and aviation really hasn't advanced very much. So we're still quite <laughs> regimented in, in, in our coding of uh, Is it like the forecasts. shipping forecast, is it? <laughs> well, very much so, yes. Um, so we have, uh, you know, prob 30, so a 30% chance so we will quite often see in the forecast for, um, you know, say, for example, just about every airport in the UK, you know, 30% chance of the worst weather that you've ever had in your life. <laughs> and it will be just for every airport. So it's always been, I mean, it's a fine balance, of course, because as a, as a forecaster, you know, you're only as good as your last forecast. It's it's a bit like being a pilot and landings. So, you know, we're, we're, we're in the UK, we're very minded of a very, you know, famous weather forecaster who went on, you know, national TV and said, there is no hurricane, it's not going to happen. Oh, poor and... Michael Fish. He'll never be allowed to live that down, will he? <laughs> but quite clearly, if he'd gone the other side of the, the pint glass, and said, yeah, absolutely, we, you know, as a country, we're going to be destroyed by this, you know, this hurricane. <laughs> you know, th there is that happy ground in the middle. But one of the risks in being um, unduly negative in forecasting is that you just create this layer of what we call Prob 30 tempo. And we just go, yeah, it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's a Prob 30 temporarily. And it's just you might as well just have omitted it from the forecast. So I was just puzzled as if you were a half full or half empty forecaster. I was always taught at the beginning of my career by, by Jim, my, my uh, old boss, that 
uh, especially when it comes to the tourism industry. Um, Easter in particular, that's like that's considered the beginning of the the sort of tourism season, if you like, in the UK. Um, to always be very careful about how you word the forecast around that time, but really any time during the year. Um, and to be sort of unbiased. So, you know, some people may want rain and others may not. So we, we tend not to, to sway either side, really. We just tell it like it is. And if we think there's a risk of showers, yeah, well, we will mention them, but uh, perhaps not mention them too much. So to make it sound like a negative forecast. Um, but I guess it depends on whether we felt that risk was sort of if there's a 10% chance of a shower, then we would heavily stress most places will stay dry and, and miss those showers. Uh, whereas if we felt like there was an 80% chance or most of the region would see them, then we would probably go a bit more heavy on, on the shower sort of thing. So, you know, I can certainly understand whenever you see Prop 30 in your TAFs and so forth that, um, you know, you see that all the time. And so you, it almost gets into sort of a cry wolf syndrome, doesn't it? Because you It does. Yeah. I mean, like showers. I say, well, an awful lot of the time I just go Prop 30 tempo, we'll ignore that. Um, because when, if you know, and you will see it, um, you know, just about every UK airport has this, you know, prob 30 tempo, 1500 metres in heavy rain. And you go, okay, right, but we, we can either work on a basis that, you know, we could be exceptionally unlucky and every airport is going to be out of limits in the UK. So where are we going to go to? Because they've all got yes. the same forecast. And, and you can't go to France because they're on strike. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Now, the French are quite interesting, actually. The French oh, in their aviation what have I started? forecast, <laughs> um, they will forecast the maximum temperature. Oh, okay. And they will actually give you temperature forecasts for the day, which is quite interesting. Um, and very few other places in the world will do that. But the French are quite good at forecasting temperature. Oh, well, interesting. Just a bit of... Yeah. Every day is a school day. Now, now you've, yeah, yeah. You've, you've mentioned this equated way that you receive the data when you're in. So presumably, so presumably when you're receiving some kind of like, well, I mean, how do you receive the, the, the updates of weather when you're actually in the air? Because, um, I mean, presumably you can't get 4G signal and, and stuff up there. So, I mean, how are you receiving the, the weather data in flight? Um, well, we're fortunate in that there are satellites okay. and we're also fortunate that over land masses we have pretty good VHF radio coverage. Um, so we have data link. So yeah, the aircraft are uh, not connected to the internet per se, um, but we're connected to a commercial organization called CETA who provide all sorts of data to airlines and to one of the data streams that they provide is, is weather. So via CETA, we can uh, uh, update the uh, en-route winds and we can also get uh, updates of the terminal area forecasts and the METARs, which are the actual MET reports. So the METARs are done uh, every half hour. Uh, in the UK, they're done at 20 past and at 10 to the hour. In other parts of the world, they do them on the hour. And uh, we can also receive uh, the ATIS broadcast as well via data, so uh, we're reasonably well connected. And, and is there uh, much uh, of a? Do you have, has there been many scenarios where you've actually had to change your route based on the data that you've received in flight? Um, not really, because what we don't have uh, in my airline is the ability to update the significant weather charts uh, because we don't have access to the internet per se. Uh, lots of aircraft do, so uh, 
Pippa at Safe Jets. He's got, you know, the whole singing, whole dancing internet. So he can get uh, real-time updates of significant weather. To be honest, um, in Europe, they don't change an awful lot. I know in the United States, uh, they're a bit more proactive in reporting weather phenomena, especially turbulence. So uh, there's a bit more uh, pilot reporting of weather phenomena there. Um, it probably is a bit more relevant if you're flying halfway around the world. And when I used to do that, we would quite routinely, uh, you know, leave somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere having no idea what the forecast was actually going to be for London <laughs> because when we were leaving, um, the forecast for our arrival time actually hadn't been produced. Uh, we've got a little bit better in the UK now in that we're producing, uh, and this has only happened probably in about the last 10 years, 24-hour uh, forecasts or 18-hour forecasts for the bigger airports. Uh, most of the forecasts are either 8 or 12 hours. So if you're if you're doing a, a 10 hour flight and the forecast only has an eight hour validity, then you can see the issues. Oh, wow. wow. Well, I, I'm absolutely fascinating subject. Dan Holly, Captain Alf, thank you very much. Oh, how good was that? How good was I'm enjoying that? these weather ones. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yes, unfortunately, mm. I'm sad to say that is the last one. Although we will oh. be hearing from Dan again, actually, uh, in in uh, a few weeks' time, actually, uh, because one of his passions uh, is a um, is storm chasing, and we had a chat with him about that because obviously he goes out to the states. Normally, he would have been there um, not that long ago, which he's a bit gutted about because of something called COVID that ruined yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, but uh, genuinely, uh, if anybody would like to follow Dan Holly, uh, you can do that. That by searching for him on searching for him on Twitter, and it is underscore Dan Holly, as in H O L L E Y, not 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 as in the the Holly and the Ivy. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you who who I'll tell you uh, Captain Al is is definitely an expert on high winds. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Uh, yes. Uh, I, if you're I, listening, Al, love you. Yeah. Can you can yeah. you remember what Al's um, handle is? I can never remember what it is on YouTube. I, uh, not on YouTube. On um, on uh, on Twitter. I can never remember what it is. There we go. Oh, I think it's uh, at um, at, uh, oh, at Airbus Al, isn't it? Airbus underscore Al. Al. That's it. Yes. Well yes. done. You see, we can always rely on Nev for useful information. Uh, anyway, we need to move on. So we've got more to look forward to from Dan uh, in a few weeks' time. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, let's uh, move on. So coming up next on the show, it's uh, it's not very often we get some, but when we do get some, it is of the highest quality and we absolutely love it. So coming up next, we've got some very nice feedback that we received this week from our listener, Nick Codling. Hello, PT UK. This is Nick Codling again. I was just finishing off listening to last week's show and there was a discussion which got me thinking. So I have a quick bit of feedback uh, to follow up on the conversation about airlines making cutbacks. In particular, Matt was mentioning about how pilots are now working as delivery drivers and Armando was talking about the switch from there being pilot shortages to now being big cutbacks and airlines having to massively reduce their headcount. We're seeing some being furloughed as well as a situation whereby pilots are leaving the industry altogether because they just can't afford to stay. Well, I'm sure many of the legacy carriers will maintain their senior staff, and in particular in the US, there does appear to be a good deal of job protection and security for pilots. Uh, 
I'm wondering whether we're in a situation where we will see some airlines are able to reduce their wage overheads by paying new pilots less simply because the job market is so poor that they can. Could this have the effect of smaller operators taking on less experienced pilots that are prepared to work for less money? Some more senior pilots could find themselves in a salary trap of needing to make a living, but younger pilots who don't have commitments could be in a position where they're able to go in at a lower salary level. Could we end up losing good pilots and potentially even see safety standards slipping because of a move to lower our less expensive pilots? Anyway, thanks again for all you do, guys. I love the show. I'm sorry I can't always join you in the chat room on a Friday. If I ask nicely, could you move it to midweek? Hmm. Anyway, that's all from me. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. <laughs> no is the answer to that one. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, Nev, have a think about that one, will you? No, shall we do that? No, okay, shall we do that? But uh, that, some great points there, actually, uh, Nick. It's... Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. It's, uh, you, it's it goes back to um, the the whole Nats thing, doesn't it? Really, where you just sort of mm. think, you know, is 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 there a little bit of short sightedness going on here with you know not retaining staff for you know because things will return, I assume, at some point to to the levels they were before, if not not bigger. So well, I hope they go. do. It's just going to take such a long time. I mm. think. Yeah. To, Any uh, thoughts? Things Nev? to get back. Yeah. Well, of course. Although I still stand by what I said earlier in the in the show about, as you said, being short-sighted. Of course, we have to remember this, that the airlines have had no significant passenger revenue at all, yeah. especially in the expensive seats. I mean, they might have had some economy fare passengers here and there, but of course, all the money is made up the front, uh, business and first class, and they've had none of that really since March. And uh, that's why they are hemorrhaging money. And uh, there's no easy fix to this, and it will be a slow return, unfortunately. But it has to return. There's no two it ways. It does about absolutely, that. yeah. And I and I think, you know, I think business, perhaps business travel, will, I think, will be one of the first things to sort of fully recover. But I mean, do you think it? You know, I, I think the recovery for like, you know, passenger, you know, passengers like going on holiday. I think, I mean, think that's going to be what's going to take the time. Yeah, the hospitality sector has been hit massively. Mm. Um, and uh, again, that, that does not recover overnight. So hotels, bars, restaurants, uh, imagine all the, uh, all the uh, venues and, mm. and all of the resorts uh, in southern Europe, especially that have been affected uh, by people not flying. Absolutely horrific. So Agreed. let's hope that we can get on top of all this and start to turn it around. But uh, as I say, I think it's going to be a slow process. If nothing else, because we've all got friends we're desperate to go and see in the States, frankly. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I want to go out for a beer with Armando, for example, mm. you know, and yes. maybe go to Atlanta and catch up with Captain Jeff, you know. I, and, I think we, know. we can all say, safely say that as much as it's been nice to get our refunds back from mm. from the airlines if we have yeah. got them because I got my EasyJet one back this week. What? Thank you. Um, <laughs> yes, money's back in the bank. Woo-hoo. Anyway, as as much as it's nice to have the refunds back from the airlines and that, I would have preferred for that money to have stayed with the airline and mm. me to have been able to gone have gone holiday, over to yeah. the states this year yeah. to see uh, Armando and Dr. Steph. And of course, and, you two, you two going to the Malta Air Malta Show, for Air example, Show, as yeah. well. That would that yeah. would have been been fantastic as well, wouldn't it? But uh, yeah. Yeah. anyway, we, we, we had some good plans for that week, didn't yeah. we? Nev? We did, yes. 
and it would have been next end of next week, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I know. I'm more gutted because I was I get to I get to live in Carlos's nice house while he's away, so I'm absolutely <laughs> devastated. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, we could go. We will go. We will no doubt come back to this subject. I'm sure before all this is over. So uh, we should move on to the last pit, please, Carlos. Yeah. So the last piece of the show then this week is uh, a story that's come from one of our listeners, and this was for the competition that we ran uh, a while back for the Plain Reclaimers. And uh, a big thanks again to Andrew Keegan from the Plain Reclaimers for that awesome voucher uh, that was won by Andrew van der Sarg. But this week, we are going to hear from Warren Dixon about aviation in his life. I was born in South Africa to a British mother and a South African father and subsequently moved back to the UK when I was young. And that's where it all started some 19 years ago. I was going back to South Africa for the first time on an Acme Red A340 from Heathrow to Johannesburg. Hmm, Captain Nick. And to be completely honest, I was dreading the flight. I was having nightmares of the plane falling out of the sky, and for some reason we were on a biplane and I was sat on the wing. Finally the day came, and with a mixture of excitement and anticipation, a nervous 11-year-old, I boarded the plane with the stereophonics, Have a Nice Day, playing on the speakers, a song that's still in my aviation playlist. We were squashed into the very back row, and as we climbed out over the English Channel, leaving Brighton behind us, I was clinging onto my armrest for dear life, so that I wouldn't slide out of the back. Needless to say, the flight progressed without any issues, and as we approached Joburg in the early hours, everything started to make sense. We touched down at 6am local time and taxied in, and when I saw the pilots walking around inside the airport, I knew that was where I had to be. My aunt gave me an Air Southern Africa yearbook, which I still have today, and I read it daily throughout the holiday. The moment we got back into the UK, I ordered Flight Simulator 2000, I think, and went up and borrowed my granddad's flight stick. I was hooked. I joined the Air Cadets, studied videos on the Now Forgotten Discovery Wings channel and taught myself to fly, well, virtually. Fast forward 15 or so years and I have my PPL. I've just completed my 14th ATPL ground school and I'm just building up my hours ready to start my commercial training and finally fulfill my childhood dream. Only, I couldn't afford it. Already in debt from various other courses, flying a little more often than I should, and just life in general, I was getting rejected left, right and centre for a loan, and that would barely cover a fraction of the total that I needed. So I did what every normal person would do, and gave up. Until the next week, when I would find myself flying again, and then I would give up again, as it's just a hopeless waste of time. I had a few financial breakthroughs that didn't actually come to fruition and by this point I was starting to get the impression that if what I was told to do it would be by myself. I started increasing my hours at work and I picked up a weekend job working for a wedding caterer. However this didn't come easy. I still felt like I was working more and more but still stuck in a dead end with no way out. I was managing to pay off a few hundred pounds a month. How would I ever manage to get somewhere in the region of £40,000 that I needed to complete my training? 
and I was spiralling into a pit and I would spend evenings in tears feeling that I'm wasting my life working every hour I could for no real reward and no end in sight. This strange revolving of mindset continued for probably about a year with my family and friends firmly divided on the matter. Some told me to do the right thing. It's a waste of time and I would end up exhausting myself working 60 and 70 hours a week that I was still not making huge progress in my savings pot. The others probably a lesser amount were more supportive and told me that I would eventually make it. I've made it this far, it'll be silly to give up, I'll never be happy otherwise, etc, etc. Nevertheless, I kept pushing on, getting closer and closer to finishing my hours, when I met someone who to this day I've probably never felt closer to anyone than her. She wasn't best pleased about the amount of hours that I'd worked, but she was at university, so she understood the commitment and time investment that I needed. As the year passed on, I was finally able to pay off my debt that I owed to my father, who helped me pay for my ATPL theory course, in the hope that maybe he could help with the cost towards my commercial training. However, it was the, at the end of 2017 that I made my breakthrough, when the 15-hour days at work had finally paid off and I got a pay rise, so big that I didn't actually hear the rest of the conversation because I was in shock. It felt like my life had changed in an instant and I knew that it was only a matter of time until I could clear my bank loans and get a big enough one to finish the training. After originally asking my dad to lend me the money to cover the MEP training in September 2018, I applied for a large loan, just out of curiosity, and I nearly fainted when I got the reply. It was actually happening. There were times when I felt like a distant fantasy a stupid dream or just outright non-existent but now it was happening I signed up to a well-known flying school in North London starting with the MEP and MEIR as my IMC rating now called the restricted IR could count towards it and save me 10 hours the downside of all this I had a large loan which needed to be paid so I was still working 60 hours a week driving down to London on a Friday evening, staying with my uncle, who conveniently lives just outside the M25, before I would cram four lessons into a weekend and head back home on a Sunday evening. And during all this, I had to somehow find the time to see my girlfriend of now three years. By this time, I had discovered an aviation podcast that I really liked, and it was a long one which also led me here. I was looking to it at work. It helped me through the long days and working my way through the back catalogue. The situation was fine for me as it helped me to keep my motivation up throughout the week, ready to fly the exhausting IR sim sessions at the weekend. However, it took about four weeks before it all went wrong again. My girlfriend had decided she'd had enough of me not being around and the possibility of me finding a job abroad once I had qualified and she ran off with someone else. A story for another time, perhaps. Needless to say, my life fell apart, but I still had to work because I had a huge loan repayment and I still had to fly 
as getting an airline job was the only thing which I saw that would pull me through this breakup. Again, I felt myself spiral down, though, although this time was different, because although it felt like I was making progress with my training and there was actually a goal within sight, the fact was that it was the weekends apart and the weather that was a particularly bad, especially the winter. I felt stuck in a dead end again. I found myself listening to more and more podcasts, delving into the back catalogues, getting through work. wasn't too much of an issue, though. But the anywhere between two to four hour drive from Dorset up to London every Friday night with no company other than my thoughts was a killer. That's where I found the aviation podcast could pull me through it, or at the very least keep me company during those long trips. They helped me see purpose in what I was doing and made me remember the goal at the end of all of this. As time passed, I gradually ticked off the courses, one by one, eventually competing and completing my airline pilot standard course on a certain A320 at Cambridge that Nev may be familiar with. Incidentally, I used the A320 podcast leading up to it. With the grinding of the Max, the bankruptcy of Thomas Cook, and now some bug going around, getting a job is going to be challenging. But hopefully this story will show that, pretty much, if you just keep at it, something will eventually happen. It took me 18 years from that first flight in an A340 to flying its smaller sister, so it can be done. Love the show. All the best. Warren. I think I think my favourite bit from from that it, it was the, the I've never heard coronavirus referred to as some bug going around. I, mm. I particularly like that. It's so true. I think I think his story is one that 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 uh, is definitely co- probably quite a few people's stories. Mm. I think in that in regards to uh, to training and stuff and yeah. and the the perils that lie in the whole thing with money and uh, well, especially life. now you think all these people that have been doing their training and stuff and mm. uh, you know everything's all on. Uh, uh, you know, everything's all on hold, isn't it? Uh, Richard Adams is saying some perseverance there. I mean, absolutely, Warren. I mean, well done for soldiering yeah, well done. on. I mean, that can't have been, uh, you know, an easy decision to make, hemorrhaging money and, and all that kind of thing. It's, um, yeah, no, thank you very much for thank taking you, the time to write that. It was a lovely story. And uh, Carlos, I think, there's a, uh, I think there's a career in radio for you there, clearly. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a oh, very dear, soothing man. tone you had there. So thank very you. Soothing. It was late last night. Indeed. Anyway, we better wrap up quickly because yes. we are massively over. So that is where we're going to bring episode 336 to a close. Don't forget social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for Plain Talking UK. Also, don't forget that all-important WhatsApp number if you want to send us a picture, aviation picture in, to go on the green screen behind Matt in the PTUK studios. That's plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. Don't forget, you can also email the show uh, podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. And you can also check out our website, www.plaintalkinguk.com. And don't forget, if you're 
on the website, take yourselves over to our Amazon link if you're going to do your shopping, as I have done twice this week, you'll be pleased to know. And also you can click on the Patreon link if you want to become a Patreon of the show. We have had a few new ones this uh, month, so thank you to you guys for yeah, joining absolutely. us and helping us push the show forward. And there's also the PayPal link on there if you want to make a one-time donation to the show. We're going to say a big thanks to Captain Nick and Ian Palmer again for the earliest segment and a big thanks as well to Dan Holly and Captain Al for all their help in this week's Plain Truth. So it just leaves me to say a big thanks to everyone in the live YouTube chat room who's been watching tonight. Thank you to everyone there and thanks to everyone who downloads the show as an audio podcast each week as well. Big thanks to you as well. Mm. Now we, so, haven't got, we haven't got you next week, Nev, have we? You're, no. Next week or the week not. after? No, I know. I'm off to Belfast next week for, on business and then Stockholm the week after, so I should be absent for two weeks. <gasps> oh, my have, have we got a possible NPE, Nev? Uh, we might have if I okay. bring some okay. gear with me. Yes. If you can be bothered. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, quite. Absolutely. Well, that's good. Now, what are you up to this week then, Carlos? And much, much exciting? Uh, just driving nope. the truck Excellent. this week again. Right. Yes, okay, bit, bit the same yep. for me. I, I'm doing as what my mum likes to refer to as a work sandwich. I do a work sandwich, so I do I do a little bit of morning and afternoon schools for Lambert's in the morning, and then uh, sort of like in between, uh, I, do, I do a little bit of um, the old naked waning. So uh, there we are. It's, oh, uh, guess what I'm doing tomorrow? Uh, buying some wine. Putting IKEA furniture together. Oh, how glamorous. What a anyway, life. Nev, what a life you're leading. <laughs> what are you doing next week? <laughs> Uh, well, as I say, I'm I'm uh, off to Belfast on uh, Tuesday for the week, uh, which I'm looking forward to. Great city, great people as well. Um, mm. So, uh, yes, looking forward to that very much. We'll miss you next week, Nev, so uh, make sure uh, you uh, take plenty of nice pictures of aviation <laughs> <Yes>. stuff. <laughs> so that's it then, guys. From me, Carlos, here in my home studio, from Matt over in the PTUK studios, and from Nev in the glorious... NevTech Studios. Have a great weekend. Have a safe weekend. Take care, everyone, and see you next week. Take care, everyone. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye. See you. Bye. Bye, everybody.